0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello,
1: Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 130 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today's episode is smell. Smell. And this is the first
0: episode of the year. It's with Smellovision. It is. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> in 2022 now with Smellovision. <laughs> yes,
1: this is our first episode of the new year and we will be talking about the sense of
0: smell. Yeah, we've did, we did an episode on eyes. Yeah. Episode 68 quite some time ago. So this is our first return to a sense yeah. in a big way.
1: So we will be discussing what it takes for us to sense smells and for animals to sense smell. And what is that? What does it mean? (laughs) You know, (laughs) how is that unique compared to the other senses? How is it unique from organism to organism?
0: Yeah, what's the diversity of smellers?
1: Because there are some real crazy ways that things decide to sniff stuff. And then, of course, we'll go through the evolution and how we try to and are able to discern or study smell in the fossil record yeah this
0: episode will mostly regard the sense of smell not the smells themselves yes perhaps someday we will do an episode about stinks
1: yeah because producing (laughs) smells and sensing smells are very different two different topics (laughs) very different subjects if you want an episode about stink you let us know usually opposite of the body (laughs) that's that's a very good point And of course, we're discussing this topic because it was requested by Nayan Deji, Hernandez, Jonathan, Brian, and Dominic.
0: Thanks for the request,
1: everybody. Yeah, this was a fun one to research. And before we get into the topic itself, some announcements. As usual, our first announcement has to do with the fact that we have a Patreon. It funds everything we
0: do. And if you patron with us... On it, you get extra goodies. Yeah, bonus news, extra, uh, we do director's notes, you get access to live streams mm-hmm. with patrons, which we've been doing recently. But also, when you
1: sign up at certain levels, we like to shout your name out in gratitude here on the podcast. So thank you and welcome to Terrakhani, Kayla, Caleb, Helen, Danielle, Bruce, Jolyn, and John.
0: Oh, starting out the new year strong. Yeah. It was very funny, actually, that the new year rolled in and we started getting a bunch of new patrons. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate all the new year's resolutions you made. <laughs> yep. That's great. I hope these last longer than your time at the gym. Yeah, that's right. I didn't even <laughs> pretend this time. We appreciate all of our patrons, new and old and even former If you would like to support us and support our science, communication, and education efforts with the podcast, consider being a patron. You get all sorts of cool stuff with it. Yes. And
1: since we mentioned it, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to the new year and to January, which is a special month for us. It is. Not only is it the beginning of a new year, but it is the month we started the podcast.
0: Yes, on January 28th. 2017, we officially released the first episode of the podcast.
1: And those of you who can do quick math may notice that that is five <laughs> years ago now. Our
0: five-year anniversary. We've been talking about it for a while. Yep. This is sort of our... Well, this isn't our fifth year. Last year was our fifth year. But yes. This, we are celebrating <laughs> the hitting five years officially at the end of this month. So we will be having a special live stream on the
1: 29th of January to celebrate, to, you know, just ring in... That anniversary but also to announce some of the plans we have for this coming
0: year yeah we've been we've been cooking up some special stuff for the five-year anniversary uh not just for the day but also for the uh, the year following on that live stream now we we mentioned earlier we we have been doing patreon live streams and if you're a patron we are going to continue doing those keep your eyes out the five-year anniversary live stream is for everybody. Yes, this is a public announcement and celebration. We are going to be live on YouTube. Anyone can join us, ask questions, stay tuned for special announcements. Oh, we're, we're just going to kind of celebrate making it this far. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of speaking of celebrating, we both are coming
1: off of and have just come back from our holidays. Uh, you still have a little bit of yours left. Yeah, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but coming back. We found a package in our mail from our
0: friend Jesse, Yeah, who sent
1: us some really neat stuff. Some
0: very cool. What a great package of prezzies. It was, yes. It was really cool. <laughs> got some fossil replicas, got some bronze statuettes that yeah. I, I love. By the time this episode comes out, uh, we should have already put a picture of the stuff we got on our social media. So check that out. Yes. Thank you so much to Jesse. That this, that was really delightful for us to find. It was a fun package. If you, dear listener, would like to send us physical uh, mementos and signs of your appreciation, <laughs> we have a physical mailing address these days. You can find it on our blog. You can find it in the episode description uh, for all of your mailing needs.
1: Yes, sorry. And with that, we can wrap up the announcements and move on to our first official section: the news. First news of the new year. Yeah, new news. Every episode, we like to collect together some paleo, earth science, evolutionary news, research, and discuss it here, share it with you, keep us up to date. And to start us
0: off, David, first news of the new year. Yes, I have picked my news and found something amazing. Oh. My first piece is about a giant ichthyosaur. Ooh. A surprising giant ichthyosaur, uh, uh, where we didn't expect to find giant ichthyosaurs. Always exciting. This is research by P. Martin Sander et al. in the journal Science, and we will link in the blog post after every episode, still true this year, there is a <laughs> blog post with links to more information, including links to more new, uh, to the news we discussed. Back again by popular demand. <laughs> this time, for this news, we will link to an article in Inverse by Tara Yarlagata. Ichthyosaurs, episode 116, we talked all about them. They are the vaguely dolphin-shaped Mesozoic marine reptiles. Uh, arguably the most successful marine vertebrates of all time. The (laughs) lizardfish. Kind of a big deal. This paper describes a new species of ichthyosaur, Symbospondylus youngorum. Now, Symbospondylus is a genus that has already been... There are other species in that genus. This is a new species within the genus, Symbospondylus, known here from one skull, a large skull, and some parts of a few other specimens from the fossil hill member, of Nevada, uh, Middle Triassic Age sediments. The skull of Symbospondylus youngorum is about 2 meters long, so a little over 6 feet. That is a skull longer than either one of us. And from the scant pieces they have, the authors estimate a total body size of over 17 meters, or over 55 feet, and perhaps a weight of 40 tons. Why? That's a big ichthyosaur. That's a bunch of ichthyosaur. That is a lot. Now, this is not the first ichthyosaur known of that size, nor is it the biggest ichthyosaur. There are ichthyosaurs estimated to get larger than that. But here's why this one is exciting. This one is from the Middle Triassic. It dates to about 246 million years old. The earliest known ichthyosaurs are about 249 million years old. Yeah. So this giant ichthyosaur existed only about three million years into the history of ichthyosaurs, which means a couple of things. One, it is the largest known tetrapod at the time. This is (laughs) the blue whale of its time. Second, that this may be the first ocean giant. Before the Mesozoic, I mean, you had big fish, right? There were things like dungolosteus and other fish that got you know great white sized yeah. this thing is fin whale sized this is huge possibly the first animal in the ocean the first vertebrate to reach that size and it suggests that ichthyosaurs which like most groups of animals would have started out relatively small got big really fast that in just a few million years they went from original ichthyosaur size so you know but maybe dolphin sized to absolutely enormous to
1: in the upper reaches of how big
0: they would ever get yes the paper does a lot of comparing ichthyosaurs with whales so today whales our are our giants of the ocean whales today where we discuss them in episode 41 range from little things like dolphins and porpoises all the way up to 40 50 60 70 foot long ocean monsters all the way up to as big as animals get and includes (laughs) blue whales with whose highest and recorded sizes are the largest animals we know to have ever existed but the giant size of whales is relatively recent Mm -hmm. right it took whales tens of millions of years to reach the kinds of sizes we see them in today it's thought that one of the things that supported those big sizes is increased primary productivity in cool waters. So in the ocean, primary producers tend to be things like plankton, phytoplankton, things that form the very base of the food chain, which are great for supporting things like baleen whales that eat, directly eat those producers, as well as things like sperm whales, which are predators, right? They eat big things. And they thrive on a healthy food chain that is supported by lots of producers down at the bottom. Yeah, Eventually, you will always reach back to the primary producer. Yes. But the Mesozoic era is thought to have lacked this level of productivity, especially in the earliest millions of years of the Mesozoic, which was hot on the tails of the Permian mass extinction, episode 45, where one might imagine things were the worst they've ever been. (laughs) So exactly what drove Mesozoic ocean giants is thought to have potentially been a little bit different from modern day ocean giants. And yet the authors point out that this fossil locality includes not only these giant ichthyosaurs, but a variety of ichthyosaurs of varying sizes, from dolphin-sized all the way up to this new one, which is on par with sizes that we see today in fin whales, right whales, sperm whales, and even the average for blue whales isn't all that much bigger mm-hmm. than what we're seeing here. This this thing is on par with some of our largest whales. This suggests that even the middle triassic could apparently support varying sizes of ocean giants. Maybe there were abundant resources of a different kind like conodonts and ammonoids and the, the sort of star piece of this research, the star conclusion, is that ichthyosaurs apparently went from small to big very quickly. The way that it was... I don't remember if this was in the article or in the paper, but it describes that this, this rapid evolution of two giant sizes occurred in the first three million years or roughly the first 1% of ichthyosaur evolutionary history. Wow. And if that's the case... This is by far the fastest that any vertebrate group is known to have reached these giant
1: sizes. It's not surprising, you know, that any group that lives out in the ocean has gotten big members, you know, because... You're in the ocean. Right, and we've seen it several times.
0: Yeah, Ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, mosasaurs, whales, even turtles have gotten quite large in the ocean.
1: Exactly. Like It's it's a thing that's very smart to do out in the ocean. It makes you faster at moving across the oceans when you're huge. Sure. It, but better for protecting yourself from the cold yeah.
0: of the ocean waters. You
1: have all the room you could want to do that. So, yeah, it makes sense. But doing it that early in a lineage... Really, to me, drives home like that must be a really good thing to do. Not just makes sense, but like that there was major evolutionary
0: pressure to fill in that size range for this group. I wonder if also it may have been a factor of there not being constraints. Yes, and that was uh, that if they lacked competition, since they if they were the first ones. Yeah.
1: To get that big, the, ev- the the next two groups to do that had to compete with ichthyosaurs. Exactly. <laughs> I was wondering with the whales of it, that if that was enough to slow down. Just that now it was an ocean that was used to right there being big organisms like this. And also, what were you doing? What were you eating? What were everything? You, just oh, just like what? a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, and the authors also point out that comparing evolutionary patterns between ichthyosaurs and whales not only has the potential to help us sort of, you know, better understand the evolution of ocean gigantism, but also the ecology of ocean giants. And, all right, first of the year, I'm going to bring the tone down just a little bit <laughs> the extinction of ocean giants. Yes. The ichthyosaurs are not around anymore, and neither are many whales. Yep. Both what can cause that, and
1: studying stuff like this can help us predict what will the side effects be of losing
0: yeah. giant mega organisms like this, and what 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 effects have among the side effects the extinction of ocean mega organisms. <laughs> yep, yep. So lots of potential things to learn from comparison.
1: Very, very interesting. Well, speaking of giants. My first news is about a real big millipede. In fact, the biggest one we know of now. Wow! Is it 17 meters long? Okay, it's not a competition. 55 it's feet? It's not a competition. I, so I'm it's, just saying. Mine has more legs than yours. My news was bigger. Mine has so many legs. Yours doesn't even know what a leg is anymore. <laughs> yeah, but mine may <laughs> very well have had 20 fingers. Who knows? <laughs> Man, these, the millipede and them having tickle fights is terrifying. <laughs> This is a new specimen of Arthropleura, the famous big ancient millipede. Uh, that is seems to be particularly big and well preserved. This is research by Neil Davies at all in the Journal of Geological Society, and the article is by David Neeld in no, Science Alert. No relation. <laughs> no relation. <laughs> <laughs> so Arthropleura is the genus of giant myriapods, which includes millipedes. It's from the, they were around from the early Carboniferous to early Permian, which is about a 45 million year time zone, and they went extinct during the Permian. They're famous for being that one that is always quoted as being as long as a full grown man, like in all the books. That's what I always. Right, right.
0: I think Arthropleura was also featured in Walking with.
1: A, a prehistoric mon- beast. Monsters. Yeah, monsters. Monsters. monsters which
0: yes which was the, paleozo- the Paleozoic one.
1: Yep. It showed up there. Uh, it also makes a cameo in Primeval. Yes, it yep. does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the two meter long millipede cousin that is, they'll often show it raising up like a cobra in a lot of things. Yeah, they, they did that in Walking yep. with
0: Monsters. Yep,
1: and, and I don't know where that comes from, but it always, it looks cool, which is why I assume we see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> though it is well, you know, famous, it's mostly known from disarticulated fossils. Yeah. Bits and pieces. Uh, yeah. Because when you have an exoskeleton animal like this, it doesn't have an internal structure to hold itself together once it dies. And so as it dies, the even if the hard exoskeleton fossilizes, it doesn't necessarily stay in one place. So it gets spread apart and separated. They're also mainly known from the late Carboniferous. This is a particularly articulated, not fully, but partially, but decently articulated remain from the early Carboniferous, about 326 million years old. It's from northern England, from the Northumberland Basin. The actual slab of the fossil is 36 by 76 centimeters, but the actual animal would be much larger. This is just a section of its segments. It's from sandstone cliffs, which likely would have originally been a river channel, they said. Okay was a cease this was a sea, was a, a sea serpent yes <laughs> <laughs> this is exciting for a number of reasons articulated specimens are always cool sure this is especially the case because there's really only two other comparably articulated specimens of Hmm. both from Germany both notably smaller in size those are also are notable for suggesting that they were from uh, coal swamps that those swamps famous from the Carboniferous, which is how most things that depict Arthropleura show it going around the swamp and the fallen trees. This is also notable for being one of the largest specimens we've found, making it also one of the largest arthropod fossils and largest arthropods in general. Oh boy. It's big. There's only the remains of about 12 to 14 segments. These are the, exo, the top part of the exoskeleton that had become sand-filled and then
0: fossilized. Okay.
1: Likely from a molt.
0: Oh, interesting. That makes sense. Yeah. That this isn't the, the animal that got fossilized. This is its shed.
1: Which is so cool. Yeah. Estimation from that, extrapolating the rest of the animal, has it at 2.63 meters or around 8 feet. Wow. And likely weighing 50 kilograms or 110 pounds. Wow. Yeah, this is not only a millipede that is longer than I am tall, but half my
0: weight. Yeah, this is like a a small anaconda or python (laughs) (laughs) of a millipede. Yeah, and since it's from the early Carboniferous,
1: it's also one of the earliest examples in the fossil record of this gigantism in the group. Yeah. There's also some evidence from the sediment that suggests it was not preserved in a swampy environment, but a woody habitat. Uh, So just normal woods instead of swamp forest. Right. Which doesn't mean that we have to like throw out the swamp idea, but that we don't have to draw them there every time.
0: Right. (laughs) Biome extension. (laughs)
1: Yes, exactly. Probably one of the most interesting things though, with it being one of the earliest evidences of gigantism in this group, it also shines light on a common idea of what allowed arthropods in general to get big at this time. Yeah. It is commonly spoken and, and shared that today arthropods, insects, and, you know, the like cannot get as big as they used to because oxygen levels are not high enough today
0: for their system of breathing. They don't have a inhale like we do. Right. But that during the Carboniferous, when forests took over for the first time, it raised oxygen levels to such a degree that they were able to fuel their bigger bodies. Exactly. But this predates that peak. Yes, I was just thinking <laughs> that, that it's early carboniferous and most of the big forest stuff was later. And they estimate that the
1: percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere would have roughly been 23%, which is only 2% higher than today's 21%. Yeah. So that it can't just be the oxygen levels that allowed them to get so big. There must be some other factor. So it's it throws a little bit of mystery on yeah, yeah. the commonly, you know, I've heard that, uh, proposed. Oh yeah. that's said all, all the time. And it's just that. always been treated as like, yeah, obviously. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, evidently not so <laughs> obviously. It makes me wonder if, like the ichthyosaur we just talked about, was it just that there was nothing there to stop it? <laughs> <laughs> that there wasn't enough competition on land yet, and there weren't enough big predators on land yet, that yeah, you, you just could get that big. Yeah. It also makes me think, uh, similarly to that ichthyosaur, that's Pretty fast. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because this is an earlier example and it's bigger than the ones we had from later. Now, it's not so much bigger that, you know, we all, like you said, we only have so many mm-hmm. good specimens. So we don't know that they necessarily, on average, were different sizes. This
1: could just be one particularly
0: big individual. Right. Or we've just found smaller ones mm. from later mm-hmm. and they were bigger, but that is an early evolution of that very large size which is a pretty cool that they were it wasn't just one group that got big for a short amount of time that there were there was just a time on this planet of tens of millions of years where giant millipedes was a thing i love the concept that When the
1: environment allows organisms to get huge, they almost always immediately do. (laughs) They just do it. Yeah. They're like, okay, how big are you going to let me get? You're not going to stop me. (laughs) (laughs) Just them raising the scale bar and just making eye contact with the ecosystem. Like, you're not going to, not going
0: to, okay. Not yet. (laughs) Well, speaking of long things, (laughs) my next news is about a bird with a long tongue. Ooh! Uh, yeah, it's pretty a long tongue bone. Oh, I'll explain that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is research by Jung Lee et al. in the Journal of Anatomy. And we will link in the blog post to an article in Popular Science by Kate Beghaly. And antiorniths are a group of birds we have discussed before on the podcast. Episode 37. I think we talked a bunch about them. They come up in the news a lot. This is the big, diverse group of Cretaceous birds. These are the so-called opposite birds. Yeah, of the not-modern birds. (laughs) Yes, they are not modern birds. They are a different group from modern birds. They are currently extinct. But during the late Cretaceous especially, this was the big, most diverse group of birds. They're found in a wide range of places. They have lots of different morphological adaptations. We see a variety of feeding modes. This paper describes another new genus and species. This one's named rostruavus macrohyoideus from the early Cretaceous Jufotong formation in the Liaoning province of China. I love that name. Brevirostruavis macrohyoideus. I'll explain what that means. Yes. In uh, a little bit. That's why I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> this speci- uh, This species is known from one well-preserved specimen that is described in the paper. Full size is about the size of a starling. So not a very large bird. Uh, The claws and toes on the feet are similar to tree-dwelling birds. All right. So this was probably a bird hanging out in trees. Perching. Perching, perhaps. The unusual parts of the bird are in the skull, notably the hyoid apparatus. We've discussed this uh, on the podcast before. The hyoid apparatus is a series of bones in the throat of uh, you see this in birds you also see it in us right lots of mammals these are bones in the throat that in us often uh, one of their jobs is supporting the muscles of the tongue so sometimes it's not a one-to-one but sometimes you can learn stuff about tongues which do not fossilize from the bony hyoid which sometimes if you're lucky does fossilize it's the tongue anchor, in this case the hyoid apparatus is very long which is something that we see in modern birds that have very long tongues. Most modern b- birds do not have muscular tongues like us. Like, our tongues are very impressive. Yeah. We can stick our tongues out, we can lick, it, lick stuff up, we can move stuff around. Yeah, they can, we can change its shape at will. Right. Most birds do not have tongues like that. Uh, you do have some birds like parrots, which have very mobile tongues, but most birds can't stick their tongues out, as the article uh, focuses on. This was a bird that could stick its tongue out. Ah. (laughs) Some birds today, like hummingbirds and woodpeckers, have long tongues that they use for feeding. They are long, agile tongues. In these, there are a pair of bony elements in the hyoid called epibranchials, which are very long to support their long tongues. And do not have epibranchials in their hyoid apparatus. That's a feature of modern birds. But they do have another structure that we see in modern birds, seratobranchials. In Brevi Rostruavis, the serratobranchials are curved and almost the length of the skull. Wow. Very long. Which leads the authors to interpret that this may have been a bird with a long tongue. A burr, an ancient bird that could stick its tongue out. <laughs> <bleh>. Here's the thing that's weird. Modern long-tongued birds tend to have long beaks. If you think of a hummingbird, if you think of a woodpecker, their beaks are also long. This bird does not. This bird has a short beak, full of peg-like teeth, because a lot of Enantiornets had teeth.
1: <laughs> I'm just picturing a bird with a venom tongue coming out of a tooth <laughs> maw.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it. A venom bird. Uh, indeed, the name Brevi Rostru avis, macrohyoideas, uh, is bird. Brevi Rastru is short snout. Yep. And Macrohyoideus is large hyoid. So this is the bird with a short snout and a large tongue.
1: It's a very functional name.
0: Yep, (laughs) a very descriptive name. This combination of long tongue, potentially, but short beak is weird. We don't see that uh, in those famous modern birds that have the long tongues. So a long, powerful tongue means you're probably feeding in a specialized way, one way or the other woodpeckers for example use their long tongues to grab bugs hummingbirds use their long tongues to probe into flowers to collect nectar and pollen and such the short beak is kind of a confounding aspect yeah the authors talk about it could be that that's just some sort of evolutionary constraint that for whatever reason maybe this lineage of an anti couldn't evolve a long beak for some and you know maybe their beak had just evolved to be particularly weak or maybe some feature of it just meant that it was difficult to evolve a long beak or it could be that it was doing something different yes uh they even point out that it could be that it didn't have a long tongue it just had a very strong tongue (laughs) right so in like i think things like parrots will use their tongues to help them you know strip seeds down or pull the skin off of fruits and stuff like Mm -hmm. that maybe it just had a powerful tongue that it wasn't doing something like a hummingbird or a woodpecker, but something that a short beak worked alongside. Well, see, now I'm picturing, because, like, uh, you know, hummingbirds have that long beak to reach into
1: the flower, you know, down to where the nectar is. Uh, woodpeckers have their long beak to peck holes. Like, it's a chisel, right. and it's made to chisel into the burrows of grubs and beetles. And then their tongue is a little spear that they can fish out the grub with. Uh, but maybe it just had a powerful tongue, and that's what it was using to bore holes in <laughs>
0: <laughs> This was uh, this was these were birds that got into tongue wrestling contests.
1: See, okay, now we went from venom. Now it's a xenomorph bird that just punches holes with its yeah, super it has powered a little, mouth tongue, a
0: little face on its tongue, <laughs> a smaller bird. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it could be that maybe the beak and the tongue aren't as closely related as we think. Yeah, that we it just so happens to be that modern birds have long beaks and long tongues together. Maybe it didn't need both.
1: Yeah, and one whenever we come across odd combinations like this, you know, there's so many. Are you doing something similar but in a different way? You know, did you have some other way to get into the you know behind bark to get to grubs mm-hmm. other than a chisel beak? You know, maybe you had s- some other feature that let you do that, so you didn't need the long beak, and then you still used your tongue in a similar way, yeah. maybe. or. Are you doing something completely different that we don't see in birds today Yeah. that we literally can't compare to because it doesn't happen anymore? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Two tongues. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you cut one off. (laughs) One in front of the other. It's got a spare. Cut off one tongue. Two more will take its place. (laughs) Uh, This is is the bird of nightmares. (laughs) Uh, If any of our artist listeners would like to do a uh, venom bird. Uh, please feel free. We, share, share it with us. We would not mind in the slightest. <laughs> so does your last news have a, is it a giant? Does it have a long tongue? No, but. Is it, it the earliest of its, of its giant size? Not no. really, but it
1: does like to act like a bird as well. Sure. Okay.
0: <laughs> it
1: is also bird adjacent. <laughs> this is about an oviraptorid embryo, baby and an egg. Dinosaur embryo. Dinosaur embryo. That is laying in the egg in the similar posture that we see in birds today. Cool. This is research by Lida Xing in iScience. And the article is by Laura Gegel in Live Science. <laughs> a lot of great parallels in our news this time. <laughs> so we've talked about dinosaur embryos before and that they are not super common. This is a very, very well-preserved dinosaur embryo.
0: This one was making the rounds on the news and the social media. People were geeking out about this one. So this is an oviraptorid. The
1: oviraptors are that group of uh, theropod, you know, two-legged dinosaurs. They have that, often that head crest and beakish mouth. Yeah, this
0: is a group that is famous for association with eggs. Uh, Oviraptor, of course, famously misnamed as an egg thief. Yep. But this is also the group that has given us like the brooding dinosaurs. The dinosaurs have fossilized over their eggs, there have been other embryos found within this group. This is th- this is a group famous for their eggs and babies and parenting stuff. I feel like if they came around today and found out what they were originally
1: famous for eggs for, they'd be like, no! They'd be horrified.
0: <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what I'm, kind of monster? My sweet babies. <laughs> this is from the late Cretaceous, uh, southern China, about 70 million years old. And this embryo has been nicknamed Baby Liang. It is... Complete, in the article quoted saying, from tip of snout to end of tail. Wow. Like, it is just a perfectly preserved baby in an egg. It's curled up in the egg as it seems to have been in life, in pre-life. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> when, it, when, it was, when it was flesh and goo. Yeah, when he's getting ready to come out and be a dinosaur. Totally measured, it would have been about 11 inches, 27 centimeters or so. But curled up to fit in a 17 centimeter egg, six and a half inch egg like most animals that are born out of eggs curl up inside of it yes and these were those oval those elongated dinosaur eggs that you've probably seen pictures of from the appearance of the embryo probably late stage getting Uh, close to hatching the comparison they gave was that it roughly correlates with a 17 day old chicken embryo which tend to hatch around day 21 all right so So, almost just about ready a little more than three-fourths of the way through cooking. One of the things that has people so excited is the posture of the embryo inside the egg. The head was lying ventral to the body, so along the belly. Mm -hmm. The feet were on either side of the head. Back was curled along the side of the egg, which is a posture very similar to what we see in modern-day birds inside their eggs. This is known as tucking. And it is an important behavior that positions the baby bird for ideal hatching. Huh. To get their beak in the right place to crack open the egg and get out. Typically, it's seen with the body curled and the right wing on top of the head. Basically, to stabilize the head. And it, is, it can be critical. Like, if a baby bird does not tuck, it has an increased risk of dying during hatching. So, seeing this in a dinosaur is cool, especially because it was not known in non-bird dinosaurs before this, which means that this tucking behavior could be much more ancestral than we thought. Uh, we thought it was a modern bird behavior. Yeah. And now it seems that it either was ancestral or may have shown up independently in other egg-laying dinosaur groups.
0: Yeah. That's, there's a lot of reasons to be excited about that. A I, I, I complete dinosaur embryo, yep. posture and everything. That's very cool. Oviraptorids are a very cool group of dinosaurs to understand. Uh, The idea of a baby hatching at a foot long, (laughs) that's pretty cool. But what stands out to me most about this, I, I, in the last several years, I have gotten in the habit of saying many of the things that we think are bird features are actually dinosaur features that birds inherited from their ancestors. Yes. That, you know, feathers and brooding postures and metabolism like we keep finding things that we thought yeah birds have these birds have wishbones birds have feathers birds have this unique air sac breathing system and we keep learning that no actually that was found um widely among dinosaurs birds are one of the groups that has that they had that because it's a dinosaur thing they didn't have a choice (laughs) right well it's like starting with that fur is not a bats thing it's a (laughs) mammals thing bats have that because they're mammals so when i hear that other dinosaur groups had sat in their egg the same way that birds do today i'm not surprised to hear that this is yet another similarity because of course it is we keep discovering these similarities What I am surprised at is that it is a similarity in a feature I never would have thought Mm -hmm. to expect. I didn't know that birds sat a specific, unique way inside their eggs before they hatched. That's such a fun... I I like when a fossil discovery teaches me something about modern animals. Right? This is a whole other data point that I didn't have before that is also now similar between birds and other dinosaurs.
1: Well, and the thing that's interesting to me about it is I knew birds had that position in the egg. I didn't know there was a reason for it. Yeah. Yeah. I just assumed that it was like, well, like a, a, you know, butterfly inside it's chrysalis. You can only fit in there one way because there, you, there is zero extra space. Right. I just assumed that it was, yeah, you, you can only fold a bird so many ways to fit them inside a an sphere, so they fit in like
0: that. I didn't know there was a reason to it. I mean, I guess if I had stopped to think about it, humans are born a certain, mm-hmm. or well, usually you know we're, we're quote supposed to be. There is an ideal way you want to be born head first for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. So late stage human embryos tend to position head down. Uh, for all sorts of functional reasons, I just had never considered that there is an ideal position for leaving an egg.
1: Yeah. And the funny thing to me is I've seen artwork of baby dinosaurs and eggs, you know, just artist reconstructions or just you know pure paleo art not even of a specific fossil uh, that have shown them in a very similar bird position mm-hmm. and i was just like yeah you know okay a thing in an egg
0: sure yeah uh, that's how a thing in an egg is i just never thought about the fact that we hadn't actually seen them that way I nor that there is a good reason for it <laughs> i hadn't thought about that you could that there was variation in how you sit in an egg yeah <laughs> Very cool stuff.
1: Now I'm just going to be looking at anything that lays eggs and go, what do you do inside your egg? <laughs> what are you... Uh, do do crocs, do snakes... Are,
0: are snakes in knots? Yeah. Is there a there? specific... Are you in a bolo tie? <laughs> <Yeah>. Not. <laughs> hey, you know what? I, we're sitting here listening to all these newses about ichthyosaurs and uh, millipedes and birds and dinosaurs, and I can't help but think, what did all these animals smell like? That's a very good question. That's what I... Honestly, that's what I'm always wondering. Anytime we talk about a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Did you smell What was good? it, sniffer? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, then let's discuss that. Let's discuss what it means to smell, to, to smell things. The
0: act of smelling. Yes. Right, right, right. Smelling the transitive verb. <laughs> yes. Uh, you, are, you are the one doing the smelling to. Uh, upon something else. We all know what it means if you smell. Right. That means you need a shower.
1: I wasn't going (laughs) to (laughs) say (laughs) anything. Well, let's, let's check that out after this break and a quick wash. The sense of smell is a pretty straightforward concept. It is a way for us to examine chemical signals from the air around
0: us and examine them. Yeah. It's, it's one of our most unexpectedly complex senses, I think, because mm-hmm. smell comes so easily. Yes. Maybe all senses are unexpectedly complex. Vision's kind of unexpectedly complex.
1: Yeah, I think most of them, once you break it down, get pretty crazy. Smell is interesting because it we think of it, it's like, yeah, you smell a thing and now you know what it smells like. But it has so many uses and utilities in an organism's life, and there are a bunch of things to be smelling, like the number of chemicals. It's not just detecting breakfast. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like, there's a ton that can be picked up with scent. And it is slightly unique among the senses for a couple reasons. One of them being that you can't avoid smell. Like I saw one, one of the yeah. papers listed the fact that you can plug your ears you can close your eyes and you can close your eyes and you can not touch stuff. <laughs> but if you're breathing, you're smelling, even if it's through the mouth, yep. you do get a little bit of scent. Even if you're breathing through your mouth while you plug your nose, mm-hmm. you will get scent. So unless you lack the ability to smell, you can't avoid it.
0: Yeah. It's just a
1: passive sense that you are always picking up information from. That's a
0: pretty fun idea.
1: Yeah. So let's go through what actually that is. What does it mean to smell something? There are two main systems to our sense of smell. The main olfactory, that's what smell, the word for smell is. No, olfaction. And the accessory olfactory system. The other one. The main one is what we typically think of. Your nose smelling volatile odorants. Molecules,
0: mm-hmm. thing, things that your nose, nerves, nerve cells pick up and recognize as smelly. Exactly. And volatile means airborne, that they
1: evaporate into the air. The accessory olfactory system is for detecting pheromones, which are typically non-volatile chemicals, Uh, usually from other organisms.
0: Right. Non-volatile, I I believe, meaning liquid. Yes, water-soluble, usually. Mm Moisture-based.
1: The main olfactory system can also be broken down into two parts, or two steps, really, two phases. Detection and perception. Okay. Detecting a smell and then perceiving that smell. Detecting is what we typically think of as smelling. It's picking up a chemical signal, an odorant, and saying, ah, that is this one. And then it sends that info to your brain where the perception happens.
0: Sure, sure. Just like eyes. We we talked about this in our eyes episode, episode 68, that your cells in your eyes pick up the light and then send that signal through your optic nerve to your brain, which interprets the light. Yeah, your eyes
1: don't know what blue... Or a dog looks like. Right. But your brain does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Same thing goes with your nose. Your nose doesn't know what coffee smells like, but your brain knows what coffee smells like. So. Your, your nose only knows what coffee feels like. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when we go to detection, it starts in the nose, your nasal cavity, which is lined with the olfactory epithelium. Ooh. Which is what contains all of the sensory cells. It contains the... Olfactory neurons, neurons specifically for smell, so your nerve cells, and each of those has a receptor protein that picks up various chemicals. So this epithelium is where smell detection is happening. Uh, Therefore, the size of it very much has an effect on your sense of smell. Right, big Uh,
0: schnoz, lots of room for smelling. Basically, so we've talked about this with eyes as Mm -hmm. well. The bigger the eye, the more space there is for cells that receive light. And so in certain respects, the better your vision could be. Yeah.
1: And in this case, it is an almost one-to-one because the receptors per unit surface area of the epithelium is a constant for the most part. I'm sure there are exceptions, but for the most part, the number of receptors you have per square inch or whatever of that nasal surface is constant. So if you have a bigger nose, you have more room and you are going to have
0: more receptors. You're more sensitive to smells, not necessarily because the tools you're using for smelling are better or different. You just have more. Yes. You just have more to use. More room for a wider variety potentially, or just more accuracy.
1: There's also the nasal turbinates inside your nostrils, inside your nasal cavity that are scroll-like, very thin bone that Mainly is for like warming and moisturizing air on the way to your lungs. Right. It creates a passageway that the air has to flow through. Mm-hmm. But also pushes air into the olfactory epithelium. So it also helps direct it into
0: a concentra- your concentrated smelling area. Right. Kind of like the way an ear works, that yes. it is channeling uh, vibrations to your hearer's This is channeling sense to your smellers. Absolutely. Nasal turbinates, by the way, that is the structure. If you've ever had the chance to look face on into a skull of something like a bear or a dog or a giraffe, most mammals, in the nasal cavity, you have this sort of paper, like like tissue paper looking structure, Mm -hmm. or it looks like the inside of a pastry roll, like a a pastry that is all rolled up. That thin skeletal structure, that's your nasal turbinates. Yeah, wafer thin. So... Smell comes in, gets directed to the epithelium.
1: In, embedded in the epithelium are the tips of the olfactory neurons, the nerve cells. Each of these carries a singular olfactory receptor. Receptors are chemosensitive proteins. They're chemoreceptors. So they, they react to chemicals. Uh, these, you know, this is not the only chemoreceptors we have. Your taste buds also count sure. as chemoreceptors. Their job is to take a chemical
0: signal and turn it into an electrical signal for your brain. Right. And we talked in the brains episode, episode 121, that yeah, nerves are commonly transforming electrical signals into chemical signals and back.
1: Exactly. These react to the odorants by each receptor is slightly different in shape, and it reacts to the molecules of the odorants by their shape. It is thought that potentially smell is carried in the shape of the molecule. Oh, that's cool. I know that there's some... I saw a couple of things that said we're not sure and that they haven't been able to confirm that. There was one that said maybe it's the vibrational frequency of the molecule. That's cooler. So, like, there is a structural aspect to smell.
0: Right. There's something about the physical shape of the molecules that that are odors, that are odorants... That your uh, cells are detecting.
1: Yeah. So when you break smell down all the way (laughs) to the simplest (laughs) level, you're smelling the shape of a thing, kind of. Cool. Right? (laughs) There is a huge variety of these receptors. Each one can interact with various odorants and a single odorant can interact with various receptors. So it's not one to one. Right. It's not that you have one set of cells just for coffee. No. But the variety is huge. Each one is coded for by a gene because that's how proteins happen is a part of your genetics says build this protein Mm -hmm. so every receptor you have has a coinciding gene code by a chunk of dna and mammals are ridiculous for it and we'll talk more about (laughs) these genes further in the episode but we mammals smell real good we can have an average of a thousand olfactory
0: genes Different types of
1: receptors. Yes, different types of genes coding for different kinds of receptors. Some, like the elephant, was listed having up to two thousand
0: different olfactory receptors. Man. Compare this to when we talked about eyes and how color vision in our eyes is is controlled by three different types of cones. Yes. Cells. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to really put it in perspective, this is the largest group
1: of like gene family in the mammal genome, it makes up 1% of our our genome.
0: Wow. 1%
1: of our genome is just for smelling stuff? We focus a lot of energy. Mammals are good sniffers. It is a big deal for us. Once a receptor picks up a scent and turns it into a signal, those nerves take it right to the olfactory bulb, which is the part of your brain for processing
0: olfaction. Just like the optical section, I don't know if it's called the optical bulb. I forget what it's called. Yeah. But I, the I, part that interprets visual signals. Exactly.
1: This is in the cerebrum. Yeah, you know, so the the big part of our brain. The top part. Which and the olfactory bulb is underneath the frontal lobe, actually just above
0: the olfactory epithelium in us.
1: Okay. So, so really close
0: to the nose. Yep. Boop boop. Once again, in contrast to the eyes. Yes. Where the eyes are up front and the receptor area is in the back. And well, that's the the, the inter, in, interpreting area, I should say, is in the back. Yes, exactly.
1: Um, now, that's for humans. With most other vertebrates, the olfactory lobe uh, bulb is up front, in front of the brain, and often is a notable structure.
0: Gotcha. I would imagine that has to do with the shape of the skull. Yes. There's not a lot of space in front of our brains. Yes, exactly.
1: So, with us, it's underneath and right above the nose. With others, it's kind of... You can see a... Like a dog's brain and you go, yep, there it is sticking out like a duck (laughs) duck bill in front of the brain. One of the interesting things about the way smell is perceived in the brain is that at least in mammals, and I think of a couple other groups, but for sure in mammals, it is processed in the limbic system, which is the system that mainly handles emotion and memory. This is unique for two reasons. One, most senses are handled by the thalamus of the brain. So our sense of smell goes to a different part and it is handled by a different part of the brain. Interesting. Also, when you smell something, it immediately can elicit a memory or emotion before you've even actually thought about it. Yeah. It is a literal one-to-one. You smell something and it can trigger a memory because it goes straight to the memory center of your brain, which means that you react to a smell before you've even really thought about the smell.
0: Weird.
1: Yeah. Uh, One of the uh, papers said that this makes smell truly an environmental probe. There are nerves sticking out of (laughs) the inside of your nose, interacting directly with air. So air hits the tip of a nerve. It reacts to the air and sends that signal directly to your brain and you feel something.
0: I bet that's why smell is so good for things like pheromones. Yeah. For eliciting a reaction that you don't have to think about.
1: And so it's great for emotional reactions like that. But also, memory means that you can equate smells to important information.
0: Yeah. I've, heard that, I, I've heard it said that smell is a very powerful trigger of memory. Yes,
1: absolutely. Because it's connected to your memory. Yeah, I didn't know that section. part. <laughs> <laughs> but it also means that we can do things like I can smell a food and my brain can immediately go, oh, I remember that food and I know that it has the stuff you need. Mm-hmm. Like it has the vitamins that we're lacking right now. So you, that smells good. Yeah. And so it, it can, you can connect the smells to direct experiences in your past. Cool. It's really important for how we process that information. And it's just how we passively experience the environment because you can't help but smell it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the main system. That's what we typically think of with smelling the accessory system with the pheromones is a little bit different and it has a different structure. This is the vomeral nasal organ. Ooh, I've heard of that. Yeah, this is a very, very interesting organ and common among most groups of vertebrates. David, your favorite animal's
0: pretty well known for this organ. They sure are. <laughs> that snakes are the reason I know what a vomeronasal organ is. Same uh, for the first time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, so the way that snakes... So we'll, we'll talk more about sort of the diversity of how smelling works across different groups of animals, but to, you know, jump ahead of the game and talk about the best smellers. <laughs> uh, snakes are actually... One of the things snakes are famous for is the way that they smell, like the... which is a weird thing to be famous for. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> especially in a group of animals that are famous for so many things, like snakes. But when snakes are sticking their tongues out, what they're doing, kind of is smelling the air. And the reason this works is because of this organ, the vomeronasal, uh, also called the Jacobson's organ. Yep. Snakes have nostrils, and snakes can smell. They can smell through their nostrils just like we do. they are little, little gaps above the mouth, and they detect smells just the same way that we do. But what they're doing with their tongues, when a snake flicks its tongue out, is that the tongue is scooping up particles from the environment oftentimes i believe these are particles that would not necessarily be detected through the nostrils either they can't be breathed in maybe they're too heavy or they're just not the kind of particles that the the nostrils would
1: detect yeah one of the main distinguishing things between the vomeral nasal and your normal nasal smelling is that your nose is smelling things evaporate into the air and in mammals The vomeronasal is picking up things that are soluble in water. Yes. So you usually have to make contact
0: with the thing, the source of the smell. And that's the case in snakes. And when they're flicking their tongues out, sometimes what they're doing is just touching, like, the ground. Yep. Because if a mouse just ran by, it has left molecules behind, odorants behind in its path. Or if something went through in the water. So a snake will actually touch its tongue to the ground or to the water and pick up these soluble, these water-soluble particles. Or they can just scoop them out of the air. Yes. Just lick these particles right out of the air. And when the tongue comes back in, it is delivering those particles to the channels that lead to the vomeronasal organ. Yep. Now, uh, I have read that it the common way this is often explained is that the tongue actually, like, runs along the roof of the mouth, mm-hmm. which is where the little gaps are that lead to the vomeronasal organ. So vomer and nasal are two parts of your face. Yes. The vomeronasal organ is right by those two. It's just above the roof of the mouth. I think within the nasal septum. Yeah.
1: It actually, in many mammals,
0: connects the inside of the mouth to the nasal right. and cavity. That's the case with snakes, I believe. But I read a re- the, the results of a recent study that suggested that the tongue isn't actually putting the particles right up against the nas- the vomeronasal organ, but that it's depositing them and I pad on the bottom of the mouth, which then raises up <laughs> against the entrance to the vomeronasal organ. Because if you ever needed ev- more evidence that evolution is not a well-planned out, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> super efficient <laughs> system... <laughs> So this is a way snakes will often... So the vomeronasal sense, particularly in snakes, to my knowledge, and there are other lizards that, that do this, that lick the air to pick up scents.
1: Yeah, a lot of the, your big varanids like Komodo dragons yeah. and monitor Monitors lizards. Monitors and such
0: are really good at picking up animal scents. Yes. So snakes will use this for tracking prey. They'll use this for depec- detecting predators. They'll also use it for detecting each other, picking yep. up pheromones. They are literally scooping odorant pop, uh, uh, particles, or what I think are sometimes called odorants.
1: <laughs> I actually <laughs> I s- didn't come across that. Awesome. S- I've
0: seen that somewhere where I, I think that's the term they used. And then bringing them into the mouth where they can then be transmitted to the vomeronasal organ.
1: Yeah, so r- reptiles like lizards and snakes have taken the vomeronasal and really specialized its usage. Uh, but it is present in a bunch of mammals, mm-hmm. like, and in, even many amphibians. For them, though, it's typically not being used as a tracking tool because they're not insane. <laughs> like a snake. Because <laughs> a snake a snake is, like snakes are like sharks. Look well, at snakes are it's sci-fi sc- monsters. All sorts of sensors. <laughs> <laughs> but you do have it present in a lot of animals still in the roof of the mouth, you know, connecting the oral and nasal cavity. And there, they're using it to sense pheromones almost exclusively now pheromones depending on how you define it i've seen three definitions the strict one is chemical signals from another member of your species meant to convey some sort of mutualistic message you know some sort of you know uh, direct communication between our kind
0: right like a territorial mark or a mating call or something like that you
1: know or i you know a parental that i am your mother Whatever it is. It is intraspecific communication within a species. Yes. Another one is more general and basically says it is a chemical released by one organism to invoke a reaction in another. So any organism. Any organism. It can be cross-species because then this allows that I can pick up the pheromones of another species and go, oop, there's a predator about. Or I
0: wonder if this would also include scents that are meant to ward off. Yes. Other animals, like uh, territorial, sure, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking things like mustelids and stinky animals yeah. where it's like, yeah, this, I want you to go away. Here's a smell for you.
1: Yeah. And and then I've seen some definitions that just say odors produced by animals, like anything, anything that's produced so, by an animal. So if you smell a
0: fart. Yeah. Add <laughs> some
1: pheromones for you. And so, yeah, I, the definition, it depends on how strict you are, but mostly it kind of leans toward that middle one, maybe the firstish one of an communication smell. That seems to be the, the overriding theme is that these are communicative. And basically the main goal is that it evokes a reaction, you know, that it's not just a passive smell like a fart, which does not <laughs> evoke a reaction as, you know per se, but it's a smell that chemically evokes a reaction in the other individual. There's typically four kinds of pheromones. You have primers and signalers and modulators and releasers that have all different jobs. And... The ability to sense it is well-known in some groups and questioned in others. The debate of whether humans Mm -hmm. can smell them is still hotly debated, uh, mostly because there are some people that seem to fully lack a vomeral nasal organ altogether. Interesting. Uh, But we still have the genes for a lot of those receptors and those smelling capabilities. Right. And fish also lack vomeronasal organs, but they definitely use pheromones. So lacking Uh, that organ doesn't necessarily mean you can't sense pheromones. And there is genetic evidence that humans can sense all four. There's even been studies that show that we can recognize kin by smell. Oh yeah, I've heard about that. That there's been multiple studies showing that humans do show consistent reactions to related individuals and strangers to be able to signify different people purely by smell. And this is thought to, this is common among animals- and it's thought basically to keep you from accidentally mating with a related person. Sure,
0: sure. And keep, keep, you, uh, keep you in the dating pool with strangers. Right. <laughs> While we're on the topic, another couple of fun things about the way snakes do it. Back to snakes. Yep, absolutely. The whole rest of the episode is all about <laughs> snakes. Um, so as far as I know, snake tongues can't taste. Oh yeah, I've heard that. I don't think they have taste receptors on the tongue. I think it's just a delivery mechanism. But the reason the tongue is forked in snakes is that it gives a directional sense. So the same way that your ears, right, you have two ears, which means you know what direction a sound is coming from. I think maybe that has been invoked for our two nostrils. Yeah, I've heard that suggests, especially for certain animals that have Mm -hmm. wide set nostrils. Uh, snakes have a forked tongue, which means that, and especially when they stick it out, that the tines of the fork (laughs) will spread out yeah, so that they can tell what direction a smell is coming from. And while I was refreshing my memory about how snake smells work, I came across a study that found that snakes specifically, because there are lizards that have forked tongues, but this was a study in snakes specifically that found that the way their tongue moves through the air causes oscillations in the air right? that makes the air sort of swirl around the tongue so that any odorants in the vicinity can get sampled multiple times.
1: Right, yeah, I have heard that it it helps draw the odorants to
0: the tongue, onto the tongue. That it is bringing, it it is wafting these smell, taste smells around and back into the tongue so that it can pick up as many of them as possible. Which is so... That sort of small-scale physics on stuff like that, I love. You're creating little EDs in the air to be better at smelling. Ah. Because snakes are the best at everything. (laughs) Well. Except, you know, walking, I guess. (laughs) They really, they've really just given up on that. You know, listen, just stick with what you're good at. If you're, you know, if you're not going to win, just move on to something else.
1: (laughs) One of the other interesting things about smell is how it interacts with our other senses. Uh, you know, we talked about you smell and it can trigger memories, but also other senses can affect the acuity of how we smell something, or it can even combine into a slightly different experience. Uh, the classic of this is taste and smell. Sure. Those are tightly linked, not in that your tongue is reliant on your nose, but what you think of as flavor is not just coming from your tongue. It is a combination of what your tongue is sensing And what you are smelling from the thing.
0: Uh, I'm going to ask you a question that you almost certainly will not have a definite answer (laughs) for. But is this the reason why sometimes when I have a cold and I'm all congested, food tastes less flavorful? Yeah, that's my
1: understanding. Basically, when you eat, your tongue has taste buds and they are sensing chemicals. But your tongue can really only distinguish five distinct tastes. And if you ask anybody, there's more tastes than that. Yeah, if you talk to a chef. <laughs> and so part of it is the combination, the levels, you know, blah, blah, blah. But also, as I said, when you inhale through your mouth, you're still getting a little bit of scent. Mm-hmm. There's something called retronasal smelling. Which Does is that mean it's coming in the back? Coming
0: in the back. <laughs> it's coming in the nose from inside your oral cavity. So if you get a cross section of a person's head the nasal cavity goes back to the throat and the mouth goes back to the throat. So there is a connection there. A bend, Which is why when you're all stuffed up, you can swallow the mucus in your nose if, yeah. you, if you sniff it's, in really hard. This is why you can hawk a loogie. Yes. <laughs> and also why if you cough or laugh or sneeze or something when there's food or drink... On its way down to your throat, it can come up into your nose. Yep. And so that connection means that
1: while you're eating, you are smelling the food in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And that combination of smell and taste is what really creates flavor. Interesting. So you have to think of taste and flavor as separate things. Flavor is the combination of taste and smell. That's cool. They've also noticed something similar in mice with auditory signals, hearing and smell. And they have proposed a
0: similar concept called smound. (laughs) You know, it's so funny. I was thinking of going Smaced, And then I thought, no, that's dumb. I won't say that. (laughs) Who would suggest something like that? Smound. Yeah, that they can smell
1: or hear and it can affect one another to create a different signal. Audio factory signal. Yeah. Weird. Uh, we've even sent, there's some evidence that visual cues can affect your smelling, your 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 sensation of smell. That if you see something, it can elicit a, oh, I know what that smells like. Uh, and there can be a triggering of that sense. Not that you're actually smelling something, no chemicals right, right. necessary, but there is a connection. Mm. So
0: your senses don't work alone, they work in concert. You have smaced and smound <laughs> and smite. <laughs> smite! Smound <laughs> famously is under the mountain <laughs> So yeah, smell
1: can get very complex very quickly And even more so when you step outside of humans Because that's sure. basically what we've been talking about most of this time mm-hmm. Is the anatomy of our smell Animal smell across the board is crazy There's a ton of variety to it Obviously too much for us to go through like a, All right parrots
0: <laughs> <laughs> macaws yeah but do you have some favorite smellers absolutely i've already talked about yes see, i already snuck it in <laughs> i got mine out of the way
1: one that i have stuff to say about that i wouldn't have expected to is cattle which have been huh. heavily researched because of the cattle industry okay and smelling is very important for them uh they could they have a better smell than us because they've got a bigger schnoz than mm-hmm. us but they also have the jacobson's organ the boomer nasal and they use that All the time, because they're a very social group. So they pick up smells from one another constantly. And this is where we can get into what it looks like when a mammal uses this organ. The Fleming response, or Fleming behavior, or sometimes called snake mouth or sneering.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Snake mouth sounds very derisive. And I don't... Listen, unless your forked tongue is sticking out, (laughs) you haven't earned this title. (laughs) This
1: is when... A mammal is sampling something with their vomeronasal. They will often raise their upper lip, and, you know, poke it out, exposing those upper teeth to really get the airflow coming into the roof of the mouth. Flatten out the tongue to help direct the air there,
0: and it looks very much like a like. Yeah. I I often think of horses. Yes, and tapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that's probably a less familiar. Uh, sight for most of our listeners, cause tapers are more obscure animals, but horses will do that when you, just the the upper lip just goes way up. They poke it out at you, and you see those teeth. Yeah, the upper lip is like flapping around. Mm-hmm. You see the teeth in there. This is the Fleming behavior. This is how mammals
1: utilize the vomeronasal. They'll usually be directing it at something, you mm-hmm. know, another organism or with another animal's peeing. They'll do that toward the urine. To
0: catch some of the
1: spray. To get some of the spray. Sure. Because you're not catching things in the air,
0: you have to get some of it. Yep. That's how the vomeronasal works. Suck up those moisture molecules. A distinctly less cool version than snakes. (laughs) It really is. Snakes are like, with the little tongue sticking out, looking all cool. Mammals are like...
1: (laughs) yeah. If you ever seen your cat like wrinkle its nose at something, mm-hmm. that's what it's doing. It's not saying it smells bad. It's saying I really, really smell this. Right. <laughs> I want to smell it with both just my organs. Bring it, bring
0: it right up in there.
1: It's so important for them that if there's a stressed out cow in a herd, its pheromones will show that, and the rest of the cows' behaviors will become notably different huh. just from smelling the stressed individual. They they show more difficulty in learning you know new tasks and become Notably, stressed themselves. So, like group living is very important for these sorts of smells. Another famous smelling group, though, are dogs. Like, of course, we're talking about smells. Of course, we were going to mention dogs here. Dogs have ridiculously sensitive sn- uh, snouts. Their snout longer than ours, so it gives more room. Dogs can have a smell about forty times more complex because they have about forty times as many. S- <laughs> olfactory receptors as us. Wow. A lot more. And there whilst like our brain is dominated by you know, our our cerebral cortex and the visual cortex is really a big part of it,
0: dogs are dominated by the olfactory. Right. This is something that when I would teach anatomy, as a grad student, I would talk about, you know, you can learn about an animal by the structure of its bones and things like that, because that's very important in paleontology. One of my favorite go to examples, and I, I would do this with living structures and with skull structure, is to get a dog skull and a cat skull, just yes. a regular household, a pet dog and cat skull. And you can see just the cat has this short snout and giant eyes, mm-hmm. and the dog has this ridiculous ridiculously large complex nasal cavity and like cats still do have better sense of smell than we do sure because we, we have got a little itty bitty scrunched up nasal this, cavity.
1: There's nothing of a
0: nose because we don't care human evolution just went nope just get everything in the front just get rid of it all we have room for is giant eyes and giant craniums because we are aliens
1: yes and that being said though we still can smell a ridiculous number of Odorants. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a couple of different researches, some say into the thousands of different kinds of smells. There was one infamous study that I've <laughs> seen a number of others that have specifically responded to, to be like, no, that said a trillion. Wow. <laughs> but humans can still smell and distinguish hundreds of different kinds of smells. And we are still very much at the low end of the mammalian yeah. sensory Scale, which is pretty impressive uh, dogs are also their snout and their nose is specialized uh, they have a wet nose which helps mm-hmm. them pick up stuff and their nostrils are formed so that when they inhale and exhale they don't mix the air oh yeah
0: it, it comes in the main passage mm-hmm. and goes out the little side slits yeah so
1: that way they're getting a clean sniff every time they inhale and you know this it's to where we've bred dogs bloodhounds to be particularly good at this right. Which is why I was all the more impressed when the same paper also listed that uh, bears, especially like grizzly bears, have been noted to have smells potentially seven times stronger than a bloodhound. Which Whoa. I didn't know. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> bears are evidently real good smellers. Way to go, bears. Uh, and this is, they're in large territories looking for carrion and stuff, so they're oh, sure. sniffing it down. One number gave that they could smell something up to 18
0: miles away. Wow. So bears. That's like a that's like a superhero right? power. Like Wolverine can't do that. Yes. Why aren't we tracking people with bears? Right? I mean, what what could be the problem? Uh, Just uh, get
1: some (laughs) drug-sniffing bears at the airports? I feel like this solves it in two ways. One, they'd be better at it. And two, everyone's going to stop doing whatever you're tracking. Right? Listen, you only get (laughs) caught by a
0: drug-sniffing bear once. And then everyone else goes, you know what? I have been meaning to go straight. Quit cold turkey. You know, you're right. This is a bad habit, and I'm going to stop. That's my New Year's resolution. This was the push I needed.
1: But... Not all mammals, not all mammals have ridiculous sense of smells. Notably, whales Hmm. are known to have much reduced or no sense of smell.
0: Interesting.
1: Now, this is often has been the classically held belief for quite a while. There has been some more recent research that shows there is still either the potential for smell. Like, you've got the parts. Mm -hmm. We don't know that you are smelling but you've got the genes and you've got the nervous system. Right,
0: which could just be left over. Yep, could be vestigial. From smelling ancestors.
1: But And there is, at least in the bowhead whale, there does seem to be a developed olfactory bulb. That okay. they very well could be using smell. But in most others, especially toothed whales, it seems to be completely absent. Like, the olfactory bulb seems to be absent in toothed whales. Weird. So, they're not smelling, and part of that is your nose doesn't work underwater
0: because it's meant for the air. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because, like you you mentioned earlier, fish smell. Yeah. And I mentioned, uh, you know, snakes' tongues work underwater. You know, Absolutely. Anacondas are an example I've seen cited as a, a snake that smells in the water with its tongue. And, of course, sharks are famously uh, cited for their de- ability to detect the smell of blood and things like that. So it's not that... Being in water means you can't smell, period.
1: But it means it's fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. With with mammals and most land vertebrates, we distinguish between taste and smell. Right, Smelling is stuff from the air. Taste is things that I, are soluble are melting into my saliva. Right. Stuff that, that you touch on your tongue. Yes. But in the water, there's no difference. Right. It's all in the water. It's all in the water. So <laughs> they do have a sense of smell. They do have nary's. They don't connect with the breathing system. Right. nares are the external, the nostrils. Yes. They do have nostrils, but they're just holes. Like if you put your finger in it, you'd hit a wall. Right. There's no channel. It's <laughs> just a pocket on the nose for sensory organs. But fish also have chemosensing cells all over their body. Yeah, so because your whole body can be a tongue, because you're surrounded by the thing. Man, I hated that sentence <laughs> as soon as I said it. If anyone has ever seen that one episode of The Tick where the guy makes a tongue monster, <laughs> and then they switch brains, and one of the characters their brain gets put in the tongue monster, he's writing one of the other characters who's got put into a zebra. Sure, of and course. He goes, "How are you doing?" He goes, "I can taste your fur." <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gross. So don't if you touch a fish. It's, it's tasting you. It's <laughs> Now, they will still have
1: concentrations. You know, they have the nares. Many of them that have the barbels, the whiskers on, like, catfish, will have a concentration of sensory cells. Okay. So they still can concentrate it, and they often have a concentration at the front of the face where the current will be coming toward them as they swim.
0: Right. Also closer to the brain probably yeah. helps.
1: And it means that you can... So if you're sensing it at your tail, there's a lag time. Yes. And, you know... You've swam through it and only sense it after you've gotten through it. It's up front. You're
0: (laughs) sensing it as you're hitting it. That would probably also give you that directional sense. Absolutely. Of, is this thing in front of me or is it sneaking up behind me? Yes, because
1: there is evidence in smooth dogfish that have paired narys, two noses, Mm -hmm. two nostrilies kind of things on their face. That is not to act like we were saying with our ears to be able to sense the difference and help them direct as they put upstream of the source of smell, which is why they can follow and track a path of a fish.
0: Oh, yeah. That's how I, I've seen it described for snakes. Mm-hmm. that They'll lick a path. And if the I, I think there was an experiment I read about where if this if both tines of the tongue sense an equivalent strength scent, they'll just go straight forward. Yeah. But if it's stronger to the right, then you turn to the right. You're just following the density. And that's how sharks are
1: able to track things like a bloodhound. But in water, Mm -hmm. they actually have four nostrils.
0: Once again, not connecting to lungs, just holes in the face for smelling cells. For sensing. (laughs) Well, like eyes. Yeah. There's just holes in the face with organs in them to sense a
1: particular thing. We also see heavy usage of this kind of sensory in salmon that are swimming to ancestral uh, nesting and, and birthing grounds. So smell in fish is huge. It's just fundamentally a little bit different than how we smell. Even if the structure, they do have noses on their face. Mm -hmm. But it's not the same as our olfactory because we have moved out of the water. Yeah. They're not not
0: sucking up air into their noses. That doesn't make sense.
1: Another famously complex group when it comes to smell is birds. Yeah. Birds for a long time were believed to have much reduced or no smell. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like this goes back... Hundreds of years, Darwin did studies and went, yeah, I don't think birds can smell stuff. Uh, That's been a thought for a long time. Part of this is based on that birds do have a reduced olfactory bulb. And that behaviorally, it was hard for a lot of people to determine whether or not they
0: were responding to any smells. Well, and birds also, generally speaking, are well known for having really good vision. Exactly. And they communicate with sounds Mm. quite a lot. Like a lot of bird communication is sounds and sights. So it's also a logical conclusion to say, well, yeah, if you're you can't be good at every sense. Yeah,
1: and if I can see a mile away, I don't necessarily need to smell. Right. Usually, there's a give and take. Mm-hmm. It's also as pointed out that if you're flying up in the air, uh, yeah, you might be too far away from odorants for it to really be useful.
0: Yeah, then it doesn't matter. Yeah.
1: By the time a smell's reached you up there, it's wafted and spread out so much that it might not actually help. Yeah.
0: Well, and also if you're moving really fast, yeah. I could assume that smells less important. All of the for me. And I actually had this thought earlier during this discussion because I was like thinking of different animals. And I was like, yeah, birds. I don't know if birds smell all that well. And then my brain went, well, vultures. Yes. And that's the thing. More recent research
1: has found a number of pieces of evidence that indicate that not necessarily we were wrong. Right. But that bird smell is much more diverse. And there are some good sniffers among the birds. There are some groups that show more well-developed uh, olfactory bulbs. Things like rails and cranes and grebes. This was found in one study. There was also research that found that depending on what ecological niche, what role and type of environment they behaved in, that they lived in, had great effects on whether birds smelled or not. And the three groups they found that do seem to have consistently decent smells are... Marine birds, so like open water birds, ground-dwelling carnivores, and new world vultures. Gotcha. America, uh, the the, vultures in the Americas. Yes. The example they gave for ground-dwelling carnivore was the kiwi. Oh, okay. Which is the New Zealand, you know, little furry looking bird. Flightless. Flightless. Pudgy little bird. Long bill, famously with their nostrils at the end of their beak. Oh, yeah, because usually birds have it right up. At the the beginning of the, the base of the beak. Yes, like right in front of the eyes. Theirs goes down to the end and they will actually stick their beak down into the <laughs> sand, probing for worms and insects, sniffing for them. And it's made very clear that's partially what they're doing. If you watch a video of one of them foraging, after they stick their nose down into the sand to sniff, they come up, they go <laughs> to sneeze <laughs> <and> sp- out. <laughs> Spew out the sand. Yep, to clear up the <laughs> nose again. Based on the size of their olfactory lobe, it's not that they likely have one of the best smells smelling capabilities of any bird. Okay. Though I've also seen that said about turkey vultures.
0: Sure, sure. So, yeah. vultures are usually the example that comes to my mind for animal for birds mm-hmm. who are smelling long distance and tracking things with smell.
1: Now, fun note on that, which is something I learned here because I also was like, yeah, vultures New world vultures, small vultures. That's interesting. Because there are old world vultures. The the, the
0: African vultures that you think about, those are old world vultures.
1: So old world vultures, which are typically more closely related to eagles, Mm -hmm. are also often larger. They are visual based. They're flying around and looking for carcasses. But new world vultures, specifically in most cases the turkey vulture, and this group is related more to storks. So similar lifestyle, different group of birds. Two different families. These smaller species have excellent sense of smell, and they are hunting by smell. They have a huge olfactory bulb, and this can be easily confirmed by the fact that people who work on pipelines pump carrion smell into the pipeline. So if there's a leak, vultures will show them where the leak is. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. So
0: they are absolutely smelling their food out. Is that a difference between open and closed habitat adaptation?
1: Very potentially.
0: That if you're living out on the plains, you can see it. But if you're you know hunting, scavenging in a forested area, you're not going to be able to see through the canopy. Yeah, I didn't find anything that stated that. So I don't know if that's been tested. Right. And that's a broad general. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to describe two different halves of yes. the world <laughs> in terms of a binary biome description.
1: But you do still get some weird confusions to it. Uh black vultures, which live alongside turkey vultures but are bigger. We don't know whether they can smell or not. Hmm. Because it is often noted that they will follow turkey vultures too. <laughs> so
0: are you just following the one who can smell or are you also smelling it? Are you like I can smell pretty well, but I know these guys are better at it than I am. All right.
1: So sometimes it's difficult to confirm hmm. behaviorally how much are you actually reacting to the smell.
0: Right. Well and I would imagine that it's difficult to test the smells of animals even if you can get them in a laboratory setting especially considering what you were saying before about the way that senses interact with each other how do you account for what you're seeing affecting your reaction yeah it's it is a very complex suite of characteristics
1: and things get even weirder when you step outside of vertebrates i was hoping (laughs) (laughs) insects have smell sure but they don't have noses So their sensory setup for smell is very different. It is spread out across the body, usually concentrated in spots, but it can be basically anywhere, uh, just depending on the insect. Very often, though, focused on the antenna. Right. The antennae of the insect, those waving structures up front that they can then direct at parts of the environment and right.
0: waft through the air they kind of it, given what we've talked about so far the antennae feel a little bit like a mix between what you described with fish mm-hmm. with the sort of whisker-like structures and snakes yep where you have this long structure that you are waving around and touching to different parts of your environment and directing to pick up these sense that uh, these molecules to perceive uh, but then you also
1: get like it's very common for a lot of arthropods to put uh, sense and taste
0: cells on their feet. Yep, <laughs> which which makes all the sense in the world. Absolutely, if you think about it, because yeah, that's what you're interacting with, with your environment with. Like if we had smellers on our fingers, that'd be great. You just smell smell anything well, you yeah. want.
1: If I had a smell and face and, and taste finger, all I'd have
0: to do is go. Do I want that food?
1: Nah. Right. Just yeah, grab it and go, nah. Don't like it. I don't think so. Oh, you're this at, one, though. When you're
0: at the grocery store,
1: yeah. oh, yeah, this this apple, this yeah. is the one I want. <laughs> and so insects, it's much more about a physical interaction with getting to smell. And then the odorants are actually going through pores in the exoskeleton to their nerve endings. Uh, and they've got similar proteins. Uh, these were called odor odorant binding proteins instead of receptor proteins. The olfactory receptor protein. So it's different, you know, chemically, molecularly, but the concept is the same.
0: And then last, but not least, Allie. Oh, man, I was going to mention <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here going, all right, I, I, as you're saying these things, I'm like, all right, if he doesn't mention insects, I want to make sure, you know, we throw a little thing to say also plants. We want to make a little note about plants. Yeah, plants can Smell-ish. Right. There are pheromones, chemical signals between plants. And and basically the,
1: the key is, yes, plants can pick up molecular information from the air. Right. Which is what smelling is. Mm-hmm. I'm picking up chemical signals from the air. Plants can do that. Not as well as animals can in the fact that there's not a... It doesn't, at least from the research I found, not as wide a variety of chemicals that okay. they're picking up. And they don't typically have specialized structures for right. doing it. They don't have plant noses. No, they don't have plant noses. The plant acts as the nose. But you do see some specialization. Uh, the tendrils of vine-like plants often are
0: very sensitive to chemoreception. Something about having just a a rod, right? a, a, a thing that sticks out into the environment to pick up chemical senses with your tongues and whiskers and antennae. Apparently that's the way to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, it... it Gets it out there, and it lets you direct it. Uh, This is how a lot
1: of parasitic plants identify their hosts, if they are a vine-like plant. Uh, You go, and once I sense the correct chemicals on you, I start, you know, eating you. Right. (laughs) It is well known that plants will react to certain chemicals when they are present in the air. It can elicit defensive responses. If they smell this, they will trigger into start pumping toxins to the leaves or to, Mm -hmm. you know, respond... You know, and this can often be triggered by, like, a herbivore eating a plant next to another
0: one. Right, that plants will release. Well, it's the uh, the fresh mode lawn smell. Yes. That that is a chemical being released by plants. That Yeah, this is an I am being damaged chemical. It says fellow grass, to war. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to arms. Activate your defenses. Start becoming as toxic yeah. or bitter as you can. Raise your blades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 And so absolutely, plants can smell. It's just not nearly as a specialized behavior for them. Yeah. Uh, it's much more passive. And it at least from what I found, I only found mentions of it in regards to defensive responses. I'm sure there might be others, but I didn't f- come across any other mentionings of it triggering other kinds of behavior, particularly. So there's a, there's a s- sampling, a smattering... Of the different way organisms... Just a taste. Just a taste. Just a sniff. (laughs) Just a taste of smells. Just a a whiff. There you go. Of (laughs) how organisms smell. Now, next, let us discuss how we got to this point. A a history of smell. A brief history of smelling. Yes, exactly. Let's talk a little bit about the evolution of smell and how we went from not not really smelling (laughs) to smelling all the things. (laughs) So when we look at smell from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, you know, when we did sight, we said, all right, at some point, nothing was seeing anything. And then we
0: went step-by-step through how sight could develop. How the ability to receive and interpret light develops and becomes more and more complex and more and more specialized over time. Smells a bit different in the fact that this is chemoreception, chemosensing,
1: sensing chemicals in your environment, which is what taste is. It's what smell is. It's also the thing that allows us to identify irritants and toxins. Yeah, by touch. Mm -hmm.
0: This is one of the oldest... Of our sensory system. like yeah. the, the, the idea of a chemical, a, a molecule, something touching a part of your body and eliciting a response from you is, that's basically how life is. Yeah,
1: that's what single-celled organisms do that. Yeah. So, though we did not have a nose for quite some time, we were sensing the same stuff that our nose would eventually be sensing since forever, since a life was able to interact <laughs> with its environment. So there's not really a beginning, but we can track the path to the, especially the vertebrate smelling,
0: sure you can. know, uh, setup yeah. for the, for the beginning, beginning, listen to episode hundred. Yes. There you go. <laughs> At the end of that, all right. Right, then we're picking up from there. Smells.
1: <laughs> now, as variable as uh, our sense of, you know, vertebrate sense of smell is, you know, there's tons of different genes, different animals have different techniques. The actual structure of how we're interacting with smell, like the receptors, has been around for a long time. Like the basic building blocks of a sense of smell has not really changed in the vertebrate lineage going back basically to our first ancestors. We find olfactory receptors Similar to, and some of them even in the same group as our own, in lancelets. Ah, uh, the
0: amphioxus is the sort of stringy, wormy, not quite fish things. Yeah,
1: the, it's semi fish shaped. Doesn't really have a face, but has a front end. <laughs> uh, these are often looked at as what earliest vertebrate ancestors might have looked like. They split from our lineage about seven hundred million years ago, uh, and have. Many of the smell receptors, not a lot, you know, but there have been 40 olfactory receptor genes noted in lancelets, same kind of genes that we're using, not the exact same ones, but same concept.
0: So this basic method of smelling was probably there in the earliest vertebrates.
1: Yeah. As soon as our, ans- our lineage started, we were sensing chemicals with these kinds of genes. And then we
0: just developed a fish version and a reptile version and a bird version, yeah. etc.
1: Exactly. So let's go through them. Okay. Now with the lancelet, there's no nose, so it's just the body. The body is the nose. Okay. You're like just, a plant. Yep. You're just sensing what's <laughs> in the water with you. And we do notice some trends as we go through, look at the different groups. And you can kind of follow the ancestral pattern of what would have been happening as, you know, lancelets or the lancelet-like ancestors gave rise to true fish, and those gave rise to early tetrapods and then amphibians and reptiles and mammals. When we look at fish, we find that they, as a group, retain the largest group of ancestral genes. They seem to retain a very ancestral set of olfactory genes as a group, which makes sense. They also have one of the smallest numbers, of olfactory genes, like a hundred or so. So not a huge amount, but they still show a huge amount of variety in those genes, which reflects how long they've been evolving for.
0: And how diverse fish are.
1: Yeah. So they still have a huge variety, but they don't typically have a lot of genes for smelling. On the opposite end of the scale, we have birds and mammals, which tend to have lots of genes, you know, at least especially in mammals and in some birds, you know, up to or above a thousand for certain ones but retain the smallest amount of those ancestral lineages. So it's much more derived of the grouping.
0: Well, they're very specialized. Yes. And that that you have narrowed down your tools and then expanded upon that tool set to do all the extremely specialized smelling that you're doing.
1: And at this point, uh, mammal olfactory genes are bigger than any other group and
0: are located on almost every single one of our chromosomes. But, Just everywhere. Everywhere. Well, it's interesting to think that when you, you know, we've talked before about the difference between living in the water and living uh, in air, you have to change basically all your senses because yep. eyes work differently, everything works locomotion works differently, but when animals moved onto land from the water, they exposed themselves to a variety of smells that nothing had ever smelled before. mm mm-hmm. Mhm you can use smells in the air in a way that you can't use it in water. Like the idea of a carcass rotting in the sun is a smell that no animal was ever specialized for smelling before, probably, at <laughs> least up till a certain point. Yeah. yeah, because if you if all life was in the ocean, yeah, no, nothing had ever had to smell that. Now, even if, it, if that smell existed for some reason, if something got thrown
1: out onto the shore.
0: Right. a wave threw it out there.
1: There's still no utility to it. Right. There's no reason to be able to smell yeah, it. A shark
0: does not need to smell that. It's not
1: going to help you. And in that line, when we look at amphibians, they tend to have similarities with both mammals and fish when we look at their olfactory genes makes sense because
0: they spend part of their time in the water and part of their time out of the water Yep, amphibians today retain a lot of features overall of some of the earliest animals to come up out of the water exactly so it makes sense that they would retain a lot of fish stuff but then have some similarities but not quite all the things that we see in later uh, diverging groups of tetrapods yes So a lot of discussion when it comes to the evolution
1: of smell has to do with these olfactory genes. Like that's a, that's a big way that we track or, or predict what the potential evolutionary pathway of a smell was of a smelling ability for a group was. So these are critical for examining, but there is a layer of complication. Uh, There are genes called pseudogenes that often come up when analyzing olfactory genes. Pseudogenes are false genes, genes that don't code for a protein. Right. These specifically were olfactory genes that now have been deactivated typically by a mutation of some sort. Turned off. And turned off. Now that happens with our genetics just all the time. Right.
0: You got a bunch of code there that's just no longer being activated during your life, so it's just not doing anything. Yeah. But with olfactory genes,
1: it's actually kind of ridiculous. In humans, at least for one recent research, they were able to identify 390 different genes to encode for olfactory receptors in us. Right. And 468 pseudo olfactory genes. wow. We have more faults not working olfactory genes than we do functional ones.
0: We just have like a basement full of old olfactory genes yes. that we're not using anymore.
1: So the question arises, why? Why are there? Why is this so common right. with olfactory genes? Part of it is where they're located, at least here in, in us humans, but in other animals as well. They're often located at the ends of chromosomes with the telomeres and things like that, that are prone to copying. These are areas of your genetic, your genome, that are just more prone to getting accidentally copied. Getting duplicated. Duplicated. So now you have two. I have two smells, two smell receptor genes for the, for the same, same, same protein, gene, same gene twice, which now means that if a mutation happens in one, there's no actual negative side effect to me. Yeah, I have I still have it. I still have the original. The new one broke or my original broke, but I have this new one, so it doesn't matter. There's no natural selection reason for me to avoid those getting damaged right.
0: or at the very least that's not going to stop you from reproducing. Yeah. No, you lost that gene, but you have the other one, so it doesn't make a difference. You're still going to go on and make babies just as well.
1: My sense of smell has literally not changed. Which means, since they're prone to copying, they're prone to getting copied and then deactivating. They
0: just accumulate this kind of damage and
1: wear. Now, sometimes... When you copy it and it gets mutated, it might change, and it might now become a new smell receptor. Sure, sure.
0: It might have a different structure that could be beneficial, could be negative. That's a yeah. way that genes diversify in many cases. We talked about that with, for example, snake venom. Yep. It's thought to have expanded and diversified in a similar way.
1: So because of this, where they are on the chromosomes and their likeliness of being duplicated, we end up with junk olfactory receptor genes. Sure. And a bunch of them, potentially. And so a lot of the genetic research will also look into what is the ratio of functional to pseudogenes when it comes to our olfactory genetics. Interesting. And you do see it, uh, notable differences. Like in rats, they've got 1,200 olfactory receptors and only 500 pseudogenes.
0: That also makes me wonder if it is a function of... So humans have relatively poor sense of smell. Yes. And our sniffers are reduced. So if you if you go back through the mammalian lineage, right, most mamma, it is common in mammals to have long snouts with relatively large noses. Yes. Over the course of primate evolution, we see a shrinking of the nose. Most primates have relatively flat faces and shorter snouts. And humans have especially flat faces and especially tiny noses, even compared to a lot of primates. Mm -hmm. So our physical nose has been reduced. You mentioned earlier that our olfactory bulb in our brain is smaller than a lot of other animals because it has shrunk in, you know, with not being usable and, you know, we're not using it as much. It makes perfect sense that we would also be reducing, eliminating, or deactivating genes for smelling. Yes, exactly. So you can kind of
1: track the importance of smell by tracking this genetic pattern.
0: Uh, That this ratio Mm -hmm. of active to inactive smell genes. And, uh perfect example to show the opposite end of the
1: extreme is in chickens they have a total of 554 potential genes sure for smelling 476 of them are pseudo pseudogenes oh man 86 percent of their olfactory genome is inactive just not using it just not using it you're <sighs> using just this small not even a hundred of them are actually functional for sensing smell wow so this is another pattern that we can look into and track. And I, I don't, I feel like this is a more recent, I didn't find a lot of research tracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, this didn't at least just pop up. So i I wondering if we'll get to see more and more of this. Right. Someday there'll
0: be a study that just looks at this for a hundred different animals and compares it. Yep. Which I would love. Absolutely. Give us a chart. We can also look at the groups of, you know, vertebrates,
1: you know, modern ones, and look at how are they smelling and get some interpretation as to the path of evolution for smell as well. You know, looking at the structures they're using and the techniques they're using. You know, fish, as we mentioned, don't distinguish between smell and taste because it's all in the water, it's all soluble. Their nose also does not connect to any sort of breathing or even, you know, the mouth in any way. It's just holes for them to pick up chemicals. And so this is all affected by the fact that you're in a different medium the medium also affects how many smells you can get because things are more soluble than they are volatile. So you can have a wider variety of things to sense in the water than you can in air. So they can have much greater acuity, you know, because they're sampling more things mm-hmm. and they can get much more complex in how they interact with it. But then on the flip side, smells dissipate much slower in water right. than they do in air because you're in a thicker medium which means you have to adjust your behavior. And so we can kind of look at that and also interpret that that's very likely how ancient smelling, you know, started, is that you weren't able to just go and know what was happening in the ocean. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You had to go seek out the smells. Yeah. In a much more active way. And so most fish either pump water to try to get it activated and wait for the smell to come to them, or they have to go swimming through it. Yeah. And so you have to be actively bumping into the smell. You can't
0: <laughs> pick it up and then follow it very easily. Right. Here on land, you can get a smell and then you can float through the air towards yes. the smell. And that just doesn't happen in the water. It's too <laughs> dense.
1: We also can assume that the fact that fish lack of vomeronasal organ very much likely means early vertebrate ancestors. That, that's a
0: tetrapod thing.
1: That's a tetrapod thing. And so they still are sensing pheromones, but they don't have that structure. Now, I wasn't able to find a lot of definitive thoughts on how or why the vomeral nasal organ evolved. Uh, there's some controversy. There's some debate about it. It doesn't actually seem like it was a direct adaptation for terrestrial life, for sure. Okay. Especially, part of this is that we see aquatic amphibians who have it. Now, they might have it ancestrally and have gone back to being aquatic. Mm-hmm. But there is debate as to whether or not we can really just say, and then we came on land, and then we got that organ, and it was cause of coming on land. Right. So it may
0: have shown up down the line.
1: Yeah, it may have showed up down the line. It may it have showed been. up slightly before. You know, there may have been sure. reasons for early for tetrapod like
0: lungfish cousins
1: to, exactly. to use it. Uh, so we're not one hundred percent sure why and when that came in. Doesn't always typically. It's it's not something that fossilizes because it's no. not a bone. <laughs> So until we get more fossil evidence and can start you know, a, a particularly well-preserved or something where we can hopefully track it, we don't actually know why this very important organ for most vertebrates...
0: How it first got there. Yeah, for
1: most uh, terrestrial, tetrapods. Yeah. Why or when? We can see some connection between in the genes of uh, fish and tetrapods when we look at the coelacanth in one of the modern species. There are basically two major groups of olfactory receptor genes, class 1 and class 2. Class 1 are more associated with water-soluble. Class 2 is with the volatile odorants. And in the modern coelacanth, they have class 2 genes, but they are inactive. Hmm. So they have genes for smelling in the air, but they're not active, which is what we see in a lot of things like whales and stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Where their genes are no longer activated. It, I mean, it wouldn't surprise. I, I, it makes me wonder what it's like in lungfish. Yeah. Because lungfish are fish that have a structure for breathing in the air. Exactly. So was there a time in this lineage of fish where they were exposing their faces and their smellers to the air more often?
1: And so it, it could be that our sense of smell developed before we actually came on land. Oh, yeah. In, in proto-tetrapods.
0: Sure, sure. Well, like I, I was saying before, you know, oh, a carcass on you know on land, no one ne- ever needed to smell that. And then I said to a point. Yes. Because what I had immediately thought of is, well, if you can crawl onto land to grab a carcass, you know, that's what a lot of early tetrapods, early arthropods on land are thought to have potentially been doing. That, yeah, if you're a bug... And you can scuttle up onto land to grab some food that no one else can get to because it's in the inhospitable sunlight. Exactly. Then, yeah, if you're a fish, but you can hop out onto land just long enough to grab a snack and come back. Yeah, wiggle out to then wiggle back in. It makes perfect sense to develop a, a smell sense to track those things down. Yeah. Even if you're
1: just poking your nose out every now and then going, not this section of beach, right? Not this section of beach.
0: Yeah. Ooh, a, a beached. Well, I was going to say whale, but you know, <laughs> it wouldn't have been a whale. <laughs> a beached Eurypterid. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we can also
1: visualize some of this transition when we compare amphibian and reptile sense of smell, because there is a mixture between the two groups. Some amphibians lack vomeronasal, while others have it. And so It's not a 100% feature, while it is pretty common in many reptiles and mammals. So it becomes much more common in those groups. In amniotes. In amniotes. We also see a different set of way of getting odorants in that reptiles, most reptiles and amphibians don't breathe like we do. You know, we have a diaphragm that we are inhaling with. Uh, It lets us expand our lungs and draw air in. And it's a musculature structure.
0: We are actively moving the diaphragm floor up and down to pump air in and out of our bodies. Um, Many, I think most
1: amphibians, can't really pump air with their body that way. They're going to be swallowing Mm -hmm. air with their mouth, which is also how they're going to be getting their smells, is by going (laughs) and getting it in touch with the the nasal cavity and the olfactory system. Mm Mm-hmm. There are amphibians and a bunch of reptiles that can pump air, but they're doing it usually with their rib cage, not with a diaphragm, uh, which means they can't do it while they're running. Yeah,
0: (laughs) some some lizards
1: especially have a hard
0: time running and breathing.
1: So I saw it described at one point that a lot of reptiles and amphibians have to kind of interact with smell like fish do and that they either have to wait for it to get to them or they have to go to it
0: Mm -hmm. and get
1: much closer. They can't do the more passive breathing That mammals are so good at. But there is a notable radiation in olfactory genes in reptiles about 200 million years ago, uh, uh, estimated. When reptiles started rising to dominance, Mm -hmm. we see a huge boost in the genes,
0: the olfactory genes. That doesn't surprise me because around that time is where... I mean, that's, you know, that's around the time where we see... Origins and diversifications and radiations early on in turtles and in forms, But also, that's where we see the true beginnings of recognizable diversity in dinosaurs and snakes and lizards. Yep. And snakes and lizards are very famous for their smellers. And dinosaurs, have a. there's a lot of discussion that goes on with dinosaur and bird, including bird, like yes. we said before, smells. Yeah, and we will talk about that. Oh boy. Oh boy.
1: Now we see that big boost in genes, mostly within reptiles. Uh, The origin of mammalia is likely another boost. Oh yeah. In the genetics. Like when mammals come around, they are another (laughs) expansion
0: of the genes. That's a fair point that that also uh, 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 around 200 million years ago is when mammals show up is around that time. It wouldn't surprise me if it, it's not just that the radiation of certain good smellers, we see an in, uh, an expansion of those genes, but the radiation of things to smell. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> mammals, and this is—I mean, this is true for many groups, but mammals are very smelly animals. Yeah, yes, Parti- mammals are really good at using smells for stuff, which is partially why mammals are so good at smelling. Yeah, we are
1: us as a group have extremely so- strong sense of smell, but we also use pheromones. Yeah, not us humans necessarily, but right. mammals use pheromones
0: and smells aggressively. Yeah, we communicate aggressively. with smell quite a lot, which means that that now there are extra smells floating around for predators and even prey to potentially be picking up on.
1: And the mammal olfactory gene group, which we mentioned is how big it is, it's You know, it's 1% of our genome, but it's bigger than every other group. Like, bar none, we have more kinds of olfactory genes than any other group of animals. Mammals are just focused a lot of energy into the nose. We're number one. Even us humans have a bunch compared to other animals. Yeah. Even though we have bad sense of smell (laughs) by comparison, we (laughs) still have a lot.
0: (laughs) We have a bad smell, but for animals, we're quite good at it. Yes.
1: And looking at our genes can also reveal variation Within a group, humans have different senses of smells. We've all experienced this almost surely where someone has gone, do you smell that? And you go, I don't smell anything. Right. And it, there is some evidence that that actually might be genetic. Hmm. When sampling individual genetic material from different people, we have found notable variants in the olfactory genes of each person. Interesting. Uh, which could mean that like, cultural tastes in smells or foods might actually have a genetic basis
0: that it's the food you are more predisposed to being able to smell well or smell effectively exactly that you can
1: smell that better or differently you can smell parts of that that i can't so for you you're smelling the good parts of it i am not right and so there. The, this genetic a- aspect of it can get down to not just group of animals, but also individuals potentially. That's cool. Uh, I'm still. I think this is a fairly recent analysis of it, so there may be people who come out and go, no, <laughs> right, <laughs> very much not. But there does seem to be some evidence for individual variants in your genetic ability to smell. Now, this discussion on evolution has been very vertebrate heavy, and sure. I tried to find info on insect smell evolution, and I I struggled to find a lot. Mm. Uh, but I did find some that mentioned that it seems that their olfactory genes, you know, their cells are derived from taste cells. That makes sense. Yep. And that it's, it's been uh, co-opted and repurposed from taste and then diversified from there.
0: That makes a lot of sense, especially since they're using contact receptors with their feet and their antennae. Yeah. Like there, it
1: is still a very similar Behavior going on. Yeah. <laughs> we touch our tongue to stuff. They touch their whatevers. Yes. <laughs> Appendages. Now, as is to be expected, we can't actually typically directly study the smelling
0: capability of ancient groups. Right. It, it's hard to pick up a fossil and go, this thing could smell. It smells 18 miles away. Exactly. And we don't know what
1: they were smelling because we don't have those olfactory receptors. We don't have their genes unless they were frozen. Right.
0: Well, and it, it, this isn't like, we, we've we occasionally talked about cases where you'll get like the inner ear bones preserved yes. of something so much, so well that you could even, de- or like the, the the passages of the inner ear so that you could calculate the frequency of sounds that they were able to hear. That doesn't quite, you can't quite manage that with noses. Yeah.
1: it's in, Since smell is such a chemical sensing ability and not a physical, you know, Hearing is a physical response to the environment. You're being bombarded by vibrations. Yes. So it's a physical structure. This is purely chemical, but there are some things we can look at. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, if you got a big old schnoz, that's more room for receptors. Yes. So if your nasal cavity, where the epithelium would be with all your neurons and receptors, you definitely have the space for it. So we can take some inference from that. But... If you've got a well-preserved skull, and because unlike us, where we've hidden our olfactory bulb up underneath the brain, where it's, it's not as easily found, most groups of vertebrates, it's out front. And it means that there
0: is a part of the cranium that encloses the olfactory bulb. Yeah, so you can look inside a skull, CT scan it, or crack it open, you know, in the old days, and just look at the space where the olfactory bulb used to be.
1: And by measuring it relative to the rest of the brain and potentially the body size of the animal, we can get olfactory ratios. What is the ratio of size that you've dedicated from your brain and potentially, you know, nasal cavity to the size of you and and the rest of your brain? And that can give us at least once again, we can't say, ooh it could probably sense this
0: many different kinds of smells or, ooh it could track something from this far away. But we can say like, yeah, it's olfactory bulb is as large as the rest of its brain combined. So it had a big area of brain tissue devoted to smelling.
1: Yeah, we can say it's on a similar ratio to this modern day animal. Right. Or at least say, well, it's bigger than this one. Yes. (laughs) Well, it's pretty big. Yep. In this group, it would be toward the top if we had to stack them. Right. The whole group still might not have a great sense of smell, but this one has the best of their sense of smell.
0: We What we can do to go all the way back to your original description of how smell works, we can look at the physical size of the receiving area and the interpreting area. Yes, exactly. So how much
1: space have you dedicated to the process of detecting and perceiving smells? Which we've done. <laughs> we've done that. Uh, one of the... Classics that we've done it with multiple times is theropod dinosaurs. Yes. Because of their relationship
0: to birds, but also just because theropod dinosaurs. Yeah, because they're the cool ones. Because they're awesome. I, this came up in episode 120 <laughs> mm-hmm. about tyrannosaurs because this has been done with T Rex. Yes.
1: And so there's been multiple studies looking across theropod dinosaur groups to see what is the relative ranking of their olfactory abilities based off of this. Tyrannosaurids often rank very high, as do dromaeosaurids. Okay, the the, quote raptors, Mm -hmm. the Velociraptor Deinonychus group. Likely had decent to good sense of smell, but then groups like Ornithomimids and Oviraptorids
0: tend to have lower olfactory ratios. Okay, Interestingly, uh, two groups that are commonly interpreted as herbivorous or perhaps omnivorous.
1: Exactly. They said that they are often uh, interpreted that way, which is very likely connected. Uh, I often think of those both as very large-eyed as well. Yeah, that's true. At least in my experience with those. I'm not an expert in
0: either. They tend to be big-eyed, which could mean that they were more visually focused. Big-eyed and also, again, this is just off the top of my head, but relatively small-snouted. Yes. Like, bigger therapy. Like, T-Rex has a huge schnoz. Oh, it's it's massive. Just the snout is enormous and part of that is because yeah that's what that's your main tool for (laughs) interacting with the world because that happens to also dictate the length (laughs) of your mouth with full of teeth (laughs) yes that that is also what controls what you can grab (laughs) but yeah so that also gives you more space to work with for smelling
1: yeah so we do see some distinct differences there it gets interesting when we look at it with fossil bird and bird ancestors because as we mentioned in the first part birds have been kind of debated as to what is their relationship to smell. Some we have definitely confirmed have good smell. A lot of others seem to have reduced or there's evidence that they likely have reduced. And it's been thought that reliance on sight and moving to flight Mm -hmm. have reduced the need for a strong sense of smell. So there's been studies looking at the evolution of birds, the ancestral groups, To actually track what is the olfactory ratios as we go through. As has already been stated, groups like the dromaeosaurids and troodontids, both closely related to birds, had good sense of smell, according to this. So the closely related theropod groups were not smell deficient.
0: Which could potentially indicate that the ancestors of birds may also have been good smellers.
1: And in fact,
0: that is what we see. The olfactory ratio, bulb size
1: seems to stay roughly stable as we go from non-avian to avian ancestors mm, so from yeah. not quite birds into actual birds yeah into or at least the earliest bird ancestors the the gotcha. very near avian we see a stable ratio so it doesn't seem like there's a decrease as we first start flirting with flight and in fact there is an increase from basal to early bird ancestors we see an increase in brain size and then and then things seem to basically remain stable until we get to more modern true birds i was wondering that so it doesn't seem that flight is the cause because the early ancestors of our today's birds were flying mm-hmm. like there were multiple groups of flying but not yet what we recognize as today's birds yep but their brain size doesn't seem to have dipped right as they take to the sky. Right. specifically the
0: olfactory lobe yes. of the brain. That, that sounds a lot very reminiscent of the case with teeth. Yes. in. It, I, I hear this a lot when people like, oh yeah, why don't birds have teeth? It is very common for people to say, "Oh, so that they can fly. Yes, right? Oh, it's reducing weight or whatever. It's something about being able to fly. Which does not really make sense, not only because bats have teeth, yep, but tons of ancient birds had teeth. Tons of ancient flying birds had teeth. It's a feature of modern style birds. Exactly. The ones that survived the end cretaceous extinction happened to be the ones that don't have teeth. So it could very well be that, yeah, the early ancestors of modern birds, the ones that happened to make it into the present day, are the ones that also had poor smell for whatever reason. Or had some other feature that leaned them
1: to evolving away mm-hmm. a strong sense of smell. Cause looking at the record, it seems that smell was actually quite important to bird evolution up until we got to our birds the our lineage of birds today.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. So that I'm sure that will topic will continue to be debated into the future. Almost <laughs> certainly. It's about <laughs> dinosaurs. But we've also taken a look at this on the mammalian side of things with some interesting insights. So there's actually a study from 2011 that looked at two early Jurassic mammaliforms, morganucodon and hadrocodium, and looking at them as well as other mammal skulls and forming a pattern, we found an interesting trend in the olfactory bulb of mammals. Oh man, I have a hypothesis. (laughs) I'm, I'm so excited to hear what you say. So when we look at the earliest mammal ancestors you know, going back 300 million years ago, like before we get to mammalia, when we're looking at synapses, synapses, mm
0: -hmm. episode 47,
1: their brain case is not super well preserved and it doesn't seem like they have a particularly big brain to their body size. Not too unexpected. Uh, Even when we come a little bit further up, we see an increase. Like when we get into the late Permian with things like Cynodonts. We see an increase in brain size, encephalization quotient, the size of the brain to the body, but still relatively small olfactory bulbs, mm-hmm. at least from what we have. Sure, sure. And when we get closer to Amalia, you know, more closely related ancestors, we see two pulses of brain increase, cephalization quotient increase, that both seem to be driven by the olfactory bulb increasing. Huh. Which means that... Our big brains might partially be due to major increases in our sense of smell. Cool. Yeah. And then there's potentially a third with the uh, 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 arrival of true mammalia. Mm-hmm. That we see a third pulse, once again, very heavily focused on the olfactory bulb.
0: Interesting. So
1: the drive for us to hone our senses. Both smell and touch for whiskers and things like that. Sure, sure. To better improve and further our ability to sense our environment may have been one of the major driving factors for mammals having unusually large brain sizes. Very cool. Yeah.
0: Uh, That's not what my hypothesis was. (laughs) Uh, Although I do think it's interesting that the, the increase in smell seems to happen at, at a near the base of mammalia, mm-hmm. specifically because I assume that puts it in the Triassic, yeah, where these pulses are happening. And that makes me think of the hypothesis, and this is always important to you, this is a hypothesis, this is not a definite thing, but what is often called the nocturnal bottle, bottleneck hypothesis. Exactly. The idea that mammals across the Mesozoic may have been largely nocturnal. And we've talked about this in the past in relating to vision, mm-hmm. that mammals generally have poorer color vision than other animals. Just uh, our genes and our structures are much more limited compared to the other animal groups. Yes. Like reptiles, birds, insects, a lot of a certain fish can generally see a wider variety of color, or rather they have more color acuity. Yes. Yes in their vision and it's thought that mammals may have lost a lot of that color acuity during an extended period in their ancestry when they were mostly living at night Mm -hmm. where being able to see color doesn't matter as much i've been wondering as we've been talking about this if if that's true if perhaps our enhanced sense of smell in mammals and touch are senses that were selected for In a group of animals that had to rely less on vision. Yes. If you're spending time active at night, is smell more important? Is that one of the reasons, perhaps, that we have such a strong sense of smell? that same time period where we were relying less on vision well i mean it's it's the
1: same concept as if an individual loses a sense if i lose my sight i have to rely on the ones i have Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's not necessarily my nose is going to get bigger but i'm going to have to get better at paying attention to what i smell and what i hear and what i touch yeah yeah because because i don't have an option not to so if you're awake at night you're only remaining senses that aren't affected by that <laughs> yeah. are hearing, smell, and touch, and taste. So you you have to use those. And yeah, absolutely, it makes sense. Uh, now the the nocturnal
0: bottleneck like, is still something I know a lot of people are, you know, right? It it there is some cool evidence for it. Yeah. And there is some good evidence to. I mean, obviously that mammals. Did reduce their vision. Yes,
1: that definitely happened.
0: Early in in mammal evolution for some reason. That is why we have reduced vision, color vision compared to other animals. So regardless of the cause, Mm -hmm. it, you know, sense trade-offs like we mentioned before, it makes total sense to me that a group of animals that diminished one sense could be selected for enhancing another. Yeah, whatever the reason, it could be that the same thing that caused one affected the other. Uh, I was actually going to make a joke before in the first half when you mentioned that uh, whales tend to have reduced sense of smell, it mm-hmm. seems. And you specifically commented that toothed whales yeah. seem to have no sense of smell. Yep. And the joke I was going to make is that they replaced all that space <laughs> for smelling with echolocation yes. sensing.
1: <laughs> with
0: an intent for murder. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And that's gonna bring us. That's gonna bring us to the end of the discussion. There's there's tons more. Like of course, the genetic research for smell is deep. Yeah, uh, you can dive into that because it it is a direct one to one. Every new olfactory gene you get is a new olfactory receptor, which mm-hmm. is a new way to interact with <laughs> cells. So the it just like smelling goes straight from nerve ending to brain. Mm-hmm. It is a direct connection from brain to ecosystem. It is also a direct relationship between your genetics and your sense of smell. So that gets
0: real complicated, but there's a lot of interesting stuff there. There's way more to talk about. And we did it. This episode was all about detecting smells. Oh, yeah. We didn't even get into producing smells. That's a whole other a subject, whole other topic. <laughs> <laughs> Equally fascinating, oh, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. I, I can only imagine how
1: complex and weird and probably very gross. It's
0: extremely gross. Just just don't um, eat when you listen to that episode. I'm excited <laughs> for that one. <laughs> Someday. If it's requested. Wink wink nudge nudge. yeah. Uh, uh, that
1: that sure would lean us toward discussing it. Now before we wrap things up, we have one last section. As we mentioned at the beginning, we have a Patreon and you get bunches of bonuses. And one of the bonus you get at certain levels is that if you ask us a question, submit it to our Patreon, we'll answer it here on the podcast. And we have a patron
0: question today. We do. What's our question? Who's it from? Well, we don't have a patron question waiting in the wings about smells. No. But since we did talk about sort of the evolutionary trajectory of vertebrates over time... We do have a patron question. This is actually a a sequel question. Yeah. This is from Jacob, who says, You answered my last question about a world without the amniotic egg much too easily. That was in episode 117. (laughs) Jacob says, I want to challenge you. I'm trying to find a scenario where vertebrates never conquer land. This time, your challenge is, What if the fins of lobe-finned fish never develop into digits? No toes, no fingers. How could vertebrates make it onto land if they even could, and what would they look like if they did? Very interesting scenario. So this time, it's just no hands and feet. Yes. You don't have distinct little digits or bindy bits. How do you make it onto land? Now, I feel immediately obliged to point out... I was about to say, is your brain going where mine went? Oh, yeah, it, it, yeah, absolutely <laughs> it is. That you don't need hands and feet to make it around on land. No. There happens to be... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would like to put forth <laughs> that one of the most successful groups of tetrapods in the world does so without hands and feet. Yeah. And there are lots of snake-shaped
1: fish. Yes, absolutely. Like, if we went with a snake body plan, it's very likely that S- sarcopterygians, the lobe fin fish, wouldn't have been terrestrial animals your vertebrates ancestors but eels oh yeah could have easily given rise to a terrestrial variant or any other of your long like your knife fish and stuff like i don't know how far back they go but pipe fish those long skinny fish are numerous
0: well and it also you know i'm thinking about fish still today that move around on land and you have things like mud skippers A lot of limbless tetrapods Mm -hmm. live lives, not only in aquatic scenarios, but in burrowing scenarios. Yes, Uh, And snakes are thought to have potentially started as one or the other, or maybe both. But you could relatively easily imagine a scenario where a mud-adapted fish, which is adapted for burrowing, Mm -hmm. navigating through the mud or the sand or river channels or whatever, could expand from there to navigating through moist soils and navigating uh, in more and more terrestrial environments. Yes.
1: Uh, But in the spirit of of your question and and what it would take for vertebrates, for tetrapods... To just not happen.
0: To just not happen. I mean, to be fair, what we have just come up with is is a scenario without tetrapods. Yes,
1: no, this would have been... Because snakes are secondarily legless. Yes. But if you were if you, originally legless... if you
0: never evolved tetrapods, four feet, then you are not a tetrapod. You would have been a monopod. Well, you're not. You're no pods at all.
1: Uh, 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 a
0: pod, whatever the Latin for belly
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> but if we were trying to get to where that group never made it, right? Vertebrates, yeah, just didn't. It didn't work the only scenario that comes to my mind is something else would have had to already sufficiently filled in the terrestrial niches. Like arthropods would have had to really have aggressively taken over.
0: Well, I think that we haven't seen, to our knowledge, a major transition of aquatic life onto land since the first groups of life made it onto land. And in all likelihood, that's because there's just not opportunity to do that there isn't a selective pressure the land is no longer an untapped resource exactly that an entire radiation of new life can exploit so if there's already stuff up on land it may be harder to find a foothold up there
1: yeah so like if arthropods had gotten up there earlier or if some if plants had gotten up there and the you know forest kicked off earlier something like that if there were a bunch of those two meter uh uh Arthropoda, sure. millipedes going around. Maybe tetrapods would have been like, meh, meh. you know what? Yeah, the fish were like, ah, well, let, let us not go to the continent. It is a silly place. Yeah, exactly. Like if if arthropods had gotten to the sizes they would get mm-hmm. after tetrapods made it out of the water, they got there
0: earlier. Maybe that would have been enough to go. It's kind of full. Well, and I I like that this s- supposes not that vertebrates didn't evolve the tools they needed cuz that's Jacob's questions are very much like what if they never evolved this thing yes what if this was lacking cuz really there are there are a lot of ways that you can move on land there yeah. are a lot of pathways you could potentially take from water into land there's whole groups of terrestrial organisms that have none of tetrapod or even vertebrate features sure sure what we are suggesting is the inverse, is that what it would take is perhaps not that vertebrates lacked an innovation, but if another group hit upon an innovation, if arthropods hit upon something that maybe allowed them to get bigger.
1: Yes, if they've had or, some new breathing structure or something.
0: Or to radiate more quickly or earlier and become the dominant group on land. Or what if it wasn't? What if it was like I mean, sharks? Yes, exactly. Sharks were the one that developed <laughs> into a land-dwelling descendant group. Yes.
1: So yeah, that that's that's where my brain definitely goes. Is there's nothing that's going to stop a group from coming on land if the opportunity is just completely open? Uh, evolution is far too random and opportunistic of right. of features for something to bar that completely. Unless there's something in
0: the way. Yep. Something else has already done it. Yeah. So that is, I guess, our our final answer is a world-dominated... Well, that's redundant. A world dominated by arthropods. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the world we have. Now, uh, a world dominated by large yes. ecosystems just every tier of the ecosystem. Mega arthropods. Yeah.
1: Uh, either it's either mega arthropods or a world of snakes, snake-bodied.
0: Listen, I'm not I'm not saying that I have a preference. <laughs> but yes, I just an anguilliform <laughs> terrestrial Oh, man, just a world without legs. (laughs) (laughs) I can can see it now. Herbivores climbing up in the trees and stripping leaves off of the branches and predators down in the ground slithering around, grabbing at stuff. You social with like mole rats with burrows, but they're all snake shaped
1: the snake world we just experienced david's supervillain awakening yeah i see a, I a see. world without limbs i see a world without
0: limbs <laughs> <laughs> oh it's so it's so close i can almost smell it <laughs> excellent question jacob very good
1: and with that we can wrap up this episode on smell It's been a lot of fun. If there's anything you have questions about, you can contact us in all the usual
0: ways, social media and email and all that good stuff. Absolutely. Like we said at the top, if you'd like to support our science education efforts, consider joining us on Patreon. You can make a one-time donation using the PayPal link in our episode description. You can follow us on the social medias. You can do all that stuff. Keep your ears out. We have a a bunch of five-year anniversary stuff in the works. Our five-year anniversary live stream will happen at the end of January. Thanks again to all of you
1: who requested this topic. You can send us requests either for for random topics or if there's something we mentioned in here that you want to hear more about, let us know.
0: Welcome and thanks once more to our new patrons and all of our patrons for supporting us. Yep, check out the blog post with pictures and links for more info. And with this, we move on to a whole new year. Yeah, which we will still... Be releasing episodes fortnightly. Twenty five episodes to go. <laughs> That's, it makes it seem so manageable, doesn't say it? Like it? That, right, twenty all oh, piece of cake. Just twenty five episodes. We've done that like
1: five times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. smell you later, everybody.
0: do <laughs> <laughs> do 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 will doesn't get it but somebody will get it (laughs) cue the music for our outro which is also an adaptation of a song from that (laughs) franchise (laughs) thanks for listening to the common descent podcast you can follow us on facebook twitter youtube and check our wordpress blog for pictures and links after each episode Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.